You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, we should probably start with a mega round of of introductions. The machine's on, right, Yanni? Yes. A mega round of introductions. My job is done. Yeah, anyone I'll take a nap. Um, yeah, can you guys do some introductions? Kind of like what you do. We're at the we're at, we're at your world headquarters, national headquarters. Yep, absolutely. Sportsman's Alliance. Who wants to go first? You guys are all gesturing yeah. to each other. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Brian Lynn, uh, Vice President of Marketing and Communication. So website, social media, print, anything that goes out to the public comes through our department and uh, edit it and put it out there for consumption. So the, the United States Sportsman's Alliance, and you guys are spread out a little bit because you're out west. I'm out west, yeah, Spokane, Washington. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so. Yeah. And uh, we're sitting right now in Columbus, Ohio. Which is where it all began, which we'll get into in a minute. Okay, go ahead. Yep. Sean Curran, Vice President, Membership and Development. So everything from individual members to business partners to our our donors, fundraising events, anything that helps bring revenue to the organization to fund the mission. Okay. Yep. And finally? Evan Husingfeld, President and CEO. I wear a couple of different hats right now, so I obviously uh, have the leadership role, but I'm also still in charge of uh, our day-to-day government affairs work. So all of our core mission stuff, our, our legislative issues, our, our lobbying, our ballot initiative work, and, and our litigation team. Is government affairs mean dealing with government? At times, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, 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 for us, we call it our core mission, right? And so, you know, when you're doing lobbying, when you're doing you know, legislative work, either in the state capitals or in, or in D.C., um, certainly it's dealing with the branches of government that, that deal with legislation. Um, in, in other areas, it's dealing with you know, maybe the judicial branch. 
for our litigation work. Uh, and then finally, you know, the ballot initiative work, the stuff that we've done in, in the different ballot issues across the country. Historically, we've done a lot of ballot issue work. Um, is dealing with the government, really, it's, it's more of a legislative issue that's just before the people. Yeah. And then at our end, we have, uh, of course, Giannis Patelis, Kevin, Kevin Murphy, the world's ga- greatest small game hunters here, and uh, Ryan Callahan. What do you have, do? You, do you want to introduce yourself? Say anything about yourself? No, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Callahan from First Light World Headquarters in Ketchum, Idaho. Uh, all right, so let's say let's do this. Um, give like, give me the 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 the, the one liner. What's the one liner of the Sportsman Alliance? Like when someone says, "Hey, man, what's the Sportsman Alliance?" We're we're in business to protect hunting, fishing, and trapping. That's it. That's Period. A, that's a great one-liner. That's it. That's why we exist. That's why we were founded 40 years ago, right here in Ohio. Was it 40 years ago? Yep, 1977, 1978. Yep. There was a, a ballot issue in the state of Ohio to ban trapping. Which And that was like the great fur, that was the beginning of the great fur boom. Yep. So it put people, like the great fur boom, meaning like fur prices kind of skyrocketed late 70s, early 80s. And what it put trapping kind well, of, in, it, it made like people aware of trapping somehow. It did. And it, it coincided with the rise of the animal rights movement and the radical animal rights movement and, the, and, and these folks who, who are obviously diametrically opposed to those kinds of activities. And so those two things kind of emerged about the same time, the late, six, uh, late 70s and into the 80s. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the genesis of where we came from was, was working on those types of issues. What was that ban? Was that a comprehensive ban or was it kind of like a whittling away ban? No, it was a pretty, pretty comprehensive ban. It was a statewide ballot initiative here in Ohio that would have banned trapping. So, it, I mean, it would have been kind of the first entry into the, 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 the all-out ban world for the antis. Was that the first state they ever went after? You know, I don't know if it was the first one. Um, it was certainly the first major one uh, following the, uh, the victory uh, we weren't even an organization at the point, right? We're just the, the founders of, of of what has become the Sportsman's Alliance uh, were the folks who kind of organized sportsmen in the state of Ohio, ran the campaign, raised the money, did the work needed to beat that thing at the ballot, uh, and then after after winning, you know, they started getting phone calls from all over all over the country. Wondering how they did it. How'd you do it? Can you come out here and help us? We've got these guys trying to do this. These guys are trying to do that. You know, and, and, and that wasn't, I mean, the animal rights movement hasn't gone away and they're not going to go away. Uh, you know, just because they lost here doesn't mean they're not going to try it in California or Oregon or Missouri or where else. So why Ohio back then? I don't know. That's a good question. There's a lot of famous trappers that came out of Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, I, when I started fur trapping, um, and set my first muskrat trap in 1984. And I remember like so many of the books I would have about trapping would be from guys down here. Sure. I mean, Ohio is an interesting state, right? We've got a lot of, um, we've got a lot of open spaces, but there's still a lot of urban communities in the state. There's still a lot of major metropolitan areas that, that might not understand trapping, that might not understand the, the benefits to wildlife and the benefits to, uh, to people even uh, of, of those kinds of practices. And so it, it's a natural natural target and has been a target a number of times for the antis over the years you know i heard explain to me one time that colorado lost you know so many of their trapping rights and it happens sort of at the minute that denver and fort collins comprise 51 percent of the population yeah like you know, just speaking in rough terms it was sort of like this tipping point where denver and fort collins sort of like made up the majority of colorado and all of a sudden you started to see 
the tables turned against sportsmen. Oh, absolutely, especially as you talk about ballot initiatives, right? I mean, you're talking about trying to convince 50.1% of the people to vote a certain way. And, and you're already starting behind the eight ball when, you, when, when it comes to trapping issues, when it comes to uh, big predator issues, those kinds of things on the ballot. You know, a lot of times when you do the pre, pre-issue polling, uh, sportsmen are way down. You know, hunters are way down. You've got to claw your way back, and you do it through, through advertising and television and, and word of mouth and all these different tactics that are, are used in a campaign. But oftentimes, you're, you're starting underwater. Yeah, it's funny that when you, when you see, like, if you go to people, if you poll Americans or go to different states and poll people and say, like, do you support regulated hunting? Overwhelming majorities of people will always say, they'll say yes. 78, 79%, yeah. Yeah, but then when you start getting into, when you start polling down, the, the more specific you get, the more people are like, wow, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. Right. They, they 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 agree with the concept, but then you can, depending on how you articulate these particular activities, they start becoming like um, they start doing sort of a moral triage on each issue and sort of like casting an opinion on it, even though it might not reflect like the main point they were trying to make that they support it. Um, was the Ohio okay? So when the Ohio ban came out, here's what I'm, here's what I want to get at. I want to get at that 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 you your organization primarily goes head-to-head with Humane Society of the United States. That's right. I mean, is that generally like, that's the general adversary? Yeah, that's certainly the biggest. I mean, they're certainly the most well-funded animal rights and anti-hunting organization nationally and internationally. And was that the case even in the late 70s? No, they've grown. I mean, they've been around for a long time, but they've grown and they've swallowed up other organizations. They've... uh, They've combined with Doris Day Animal League. They've combined with, I believe, the Fund for Animals and others over the years. Uh, but today, they, they certainly are the, the biggest and the most well-funded. There's like a ton, I think there's a ton of confusion that people have. Like your average Joe Blow has a lot of confusion about what the Humane Society does. I think if you go to most people, they think it's about like taking care of of sheltering cats and dogs. Cats and dogs, yep. And, you know, I... I hate to give credit where credit's due, but they did a masterful job of mainstreaming their image, right? They've done a masterful job of co-opting that term. The local humane society is the guys who rescue cats and dogs. Like you said, it's where you go to get a, a shelter animal if you, if you need a pet. They've taken that and they've, 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 they've used that to wrap their radical agenda. And so they, they use that moniker, they use that name as a way to cover up really what the true agenda of the organization is. They don't run animal shelters. You know, they don't run pet shelters. They, they hardly do any of that kind of work at all. They're, they're a policy-driven organization that's based in Washington, D.C. But when people say the local, if someone says like the local humane society, mm-hmm. is that fundamentally distinct from HSUS? Absolutely. They're not associated at all. A lot there's of the, no association. No, no. A lot of the local humane societies actually are, are, are frustrated by, by the HSUS, by the, by the funding side of it, right? Because you get people who, who see their commercials on TV, right? You put a sad dog, a mangy dog and with some sad music and... You run a commercial and you get $19 a month out of it, and all this money flows up to Washington, D.C. It's not flowing into local shelters. It's not, it's not saving cats and dogs. It's pushing, pushing uh, these, these, these policy agendas. See, here I am talking about how it's annoying that people are confused about it, but I'm confused about it because I thought there was some. So. There's none. There, so it, there's, okay. It's little H and capital H. You know, Your local shelters are dependent upon donations and local taxes. That's it. And they're struggling. Humane Society of the United States... Less than one percent of their budget goes to uh, grants or any kind of support for local shelters. They're less than co-opting 1%. this message. Yes, less than one percent, according to their nine ninety re- tax returns, and they've co-opted it. 
and they've they're using it to fund ballot initiatives or lobbying to stop hunting, trapping, and uh, big ag. Cal, how familiar with you, or how checked out are you on that? Enough to not object to anything that's being said. No, I'm not asking to weigh in on it. I'm just doing it. I'm doing a man on the street right now. Yeah, like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like stopping you on the street to say, "Hey, man." I, well, I guess I do want to know like where the no kill shelter comes in. Uh, so you know, local shelters, a place where you go get your your uh, you know discarded puppy. Um, some are kill shelters some are no kill shelters and i know that's always for funding a, a big uh big issue you know um and so is is a no kill shelter associated with any organization specifically or is that just something no, done on the local level those are local levels okay. decisions you know there'll be parent groups that'll run shelters as no kill but you know as far as the humane society they have zero connection to any shelter the hsu hsus so let's say that when we're saying this is our little rule here when we, we'll say HSUS, how's that? And by that, we mean uppercase humane society, like the legal lobbying yep. group, and not where you go down, where you take your kids down to get your, get your pup. Yeah, that's yeah. their HSUS has a zero connection to any shelters. That's not to say that those folks aren't, aren't necessarily uh, philosophically aligned on, at times. Oh, I'm sure. But, yeah. but, they're, but they're not necessarily related organizations either. So I want to talk about how. Um, how anti-hunting, fishing, trapping initiatives, how they usually work in a state, just in a general sense. Then we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different or, or a handful of different scenarios, ways in which they work. But, and I pulled this from some materials, that you, materials that you guys provide with me, that there's basically like three ways to work on the state level. And so the introduction of legislation, and maybe you can like give me a quick run through on these, the introduction of legislation you know what? Let's do this. Is it appropriate to do this through what happened in Maine a couple of years ago around black bear hunting? Yeah, absolutely. The, okay, and by this I'm talking about that in your materials you explain that there's like a, a sequence where you introduce legislation that'd be weighed by the state legislature. You can conduct lawsuits where you sue state fish and game agencies and you can do ballot initiatives. Is what happened around bear hunting in Maine was... Was there something from all three of those that you could point to, or only two of those? Uh, well, yes, there were all three, but not necessarily in that linear order, right? Okay, so, yeah, all right, lay it out for me. So typically what you see is, is HSUS looks to build a case, and, and other groups that push ballot initiatives look to build a case for public support, right? So oftentimes they'll throw a bill into the legislature, start to get media coverage about it, create an issue um, where there might not be one right now. You know, there's not, there's not a need to ban black bear hunting in Ming, obviously. Their population has tripled. Over the last 10 years, they, it was voted down in 2004, but they decided to bring the issue back. And so you, you see them introduce legislation first as a way to drum up some support, drum up some um, of their supporters, and then also drum up the media attention. So they lost an anti-bear hunting thing in 2004? Yeah. Oh, and probably more. just to test the waters too, right? I mean, if it goes dead, they might they go, so, all right, it's not the time or place yet. Yeah, I mean, they can see how much interest there is. I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I can't attest to this, but I think in a lot of cases, uh, these issues, these ballot initiatives they run are probably net, net fundraisers for them, even after all the money they spend. You know, they're advertising nationally. They're advertising and, and getting money sent from all over the country to work on these kinds of issues. 
Um, and so the more that they can drum up, uh, bang the drum on, on the need to ban these cruel and un- inhumane and, and, and barbaric practices, as they call them, the better job they're going to do on the fundraising side as well. So, yeah, there was a, there was a ballot initiative in 2004 that they lost. Um, you know, they went away for four different cycles. They didn't come back. And then they came back in 2013 looking to, to start the issue again. Um, and so there was a lawsuit that was, that was wrapped into that. I don't know if you want to get into the, the campaign itself, but there was a lawsuit that they brought during the campaign that they tried to sue us to get our TV ads taken off the air. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, but let's let's get into the let's get into the campaign itself. So they introduced some legislation, didn't go anywhere. Meaning that that the that the state legislators that elected individuals would, outside of bringing it directly to voters, that they would have decided and pass some bill yeah that doesn't go anywhere that's typically the mo right they try to do it legislatively first we've seen it in 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 maine we've seen it in montana we saw it in arizona this last cycle on on mountain lion so they typically try to do legislation first it's much cheaper than, than running a ballot initiative okay typically ballot initiatives especially on wildlife related issues are won and lost on dollars spent can you say specifically what the ban is just i mean oh, so yeah. ban on bear hunting yep. yes but so well it, it wasn't go ahead in the state of maine the the the, 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 the ballot initiative in 2014 was on uh, running black bears with dogs, using traps, and bait. Uh, and in the state of Maine, I, I, I want to say it was 93% of the bears they take each, each year are taken with those three methods, bait being the biggest uh, of the three, but all three account for roughly 93% of, yeah, the, of the harvest. Flat. Very, very thick, dense. Flat, thickly yeah. vegetated country. And it's just, yeah. that's, just how it's, that's just how you do it. So you're, you're, kinda, you're pushing for sort of an eff- Basically, you're effectively banning it. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what we've seen on these things. And, and, you know, we can get into other tangential issues like right to hunt amendments and stuff like that. that but the issue comes back to they don't typically try to ban bear hunting. Like, like you said, they don't try to ban deer hunting. They try to ban means and methods. So they're going to go after the most inhumane, as they call it, means and methods. And so in this case, they, they, they targeted trapping, they targeted baiting, and they targeted hounds. But it's funny when – I shouldn't – funny is not the right word – that they'll use words like inhumane um, when it really doesn't conform to like a definition of what's humane, but it's sort of like a way you can do it. It'd be, it'd be almost like, it'd be almost like they're saying like, we view it as unsportsmanlike. And then, because it, it's not, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to say like, no, and it's okay to shoot a bear, it's okay to sh- shoot a bear with a bow or gun, but it's inhumane if it's over bait. But if you think of like the humane part, one would assume meant like the method of kill, mm-hmm. right? Like, is it a clean method of kill? So there you have a lot of people would say like, well, over bait really winds up being a cleaner method of kill because you're getting a short, you're getting a shorter range shot. You're better able to identify the target. You have a longer window, you know, in which to place the your target. shot. So one could feasibly argue there'd be like, like this you know, this practical argument that it's more humane to do it that way if you're really interested in parsing out what humane is. They're not, though. But it's like a term that they grab onto because it means something. And I think that what they're at, what, like another way that they would put it would be like, what's well, unsportsmanlike. And then you put like, so you're, you're concerned with sportsmanlike practices? Like you're, in, you're concerned with enforcing a code of ethics? Well, you, you turn it around on them. Like, so, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, they're not going to be okay with, with black bear hunting at all. Yeah, exactly. But they're, but they're using that because at, at, in a ballot initiative specifically, you're, you're not dealing with, with the legislature. You're not dealing with a, a finite body. You're dealing with the public. And so they're trying to convince the soccer mom in Portland or in Augusta or in Bangor that, that they need to care about this issue. And so they're going to pick out on those things, right? They're going to they're isolate those things. 
but if you got them, if you got them into a one-on-one conversation, they're not going to be okay with, with with black bear hunting at all. Exactly, exactly. So they in that state in Maine with the ballot initiative, what did they have to do? Fifty-one percent of the vote. Yep. Yeah, well, fifty point one 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 more vote than fifty percent. Yeah. Okay. And how did it go? Well, we won. We won uh, by a bigger margin. They won in two thousand four. Uh, they spent no kidding, yeah, really? a little bit bigger margin. Yeah. They spent, they spent $3 million in the state. Yeah, 2.7, 2.7 2. Yeah, and change. How much was spent on the other side? That's what they spent. They spent, yeah. HSU has spent, their, their group spent 2.7. Our, our campaign raised about 2.3 and about, yeah, about 2.3. Well, so that doesn't conform to your idea that it's dollars spent. You guys understand. Well, you, still, you have to be good too. I mean, oh. you, have to, you, have to know, <laughs> you have to put the right stuff on TV. You have to put the, the right campaign plan in place. Uh, and, and it's it's not equitable either, right? Because you know, if you look at the two point seven million dollars that the other side raised, two point six and change came directly from DC, came directly from HSUS. Okay. But it was under the guise of Mainers for Fair Bear Hunting. That's the name of the campaign. It's it's you call it a front group, right? Were I mean, there yeah, but were, were there bear hunters in Mainers for Fair Bear Hunting? Oh, they found a few. Yeah, I mean, they found some guys that they could trot out there to say, you know, hey, we're we don't we don't like these practices either. I mean, that's that's typical. You know, it's 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 a misnomer to think that we're going to carry hunters, you know, lock, stock, and barrel. Right? Yeah. We're, we're, you know, you look at these things. You know, Brian and I were just talking about this the other day, though. The Montana trapping issue. Yeah, they found some. They found some bird doggers to uh-huh. come out. And- well, if you if we did polling on the thing before we ran the campaign, twenty three percent of hunting licensed buyers, guys who had hunted in the last year, would have voted for it. Yeah, because they're worried about the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the same. It was a similar kind of polling in Maine as well. We were losing twenty to twenty-five percent of hunting licensed buyers who were going to vote for the the black bear ban. So it's it's one of those things that you can't always assume that those folks are going to be with you. You got to do the education. You got to put the right kind of TV uh, commercials together. You got to put the right kind of campaign plan together. And we talk about it in two senses, right? We talk about messenger and messages. You have to have impactful messengers. You have to have believable messengers. But if they're not saying an impactful message, if they don't have an emotional message to to drive home it's not going to be impactful in terms of polling and moving the needle. Yeah. So when you, when you look at one of these ballot issue campaigns, the entire thing is built around the idea of how do you change the way that 50.1% of the people are going to vote in that 12-hour window on election day. Nothing else matters. doesn't matter how they feel the day before. doesn't matter how they feel the day after. It all comes down to how are they going to vote on that day. And that's what your campaign has to be built around. What was the split on votes? It was pretty sound defeat, wasn't it? I want to say it was 57-43. Is that right? I can pull it up here. I, I, I That's can't pretty remember. close. I can't remember off the top of my head. That's bad. I should know that. Yeah, it was like and 16% it was, it did or better something. Than, I can't believe that it did better than in 2004. Yeah, it was about a, about a percentage point, point and a half better than, uh, than it was in 2004. Okay. So you guys are talking about um, the, the, the messaging and the messenger. Can you explain a little bit like what exactly what that means or like what sort of like the message or who the messenger was and use either example, whether it's Montana or Maine. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, you look at voting and what the other side's doing, what we're doing as hunters, we love to say, we got the science, we got the facts, we can prove all this and we can, but the other side uses pure emotion. You know, the soccer moms in the cities, it's a battle for those urban areas and the people that don't understand it. And what moves the needle there and with those people is emotion. And it's the simple emotions, you know, you're killing these things unethically or inhumanely or whatever they want to say. Trophy hunt, you know, they throw that term out there and that sways everybody. Um, and so that message and messenger, we have to counteract that. We can use facts. We can point out that there's going to be increased bear attacks or more depredation permits or more issues or whatever. 
But we also have to tap into that emotion, you know, and in Montana and in Maine, that's what we did. You know, we had to slowly ramp up that emotional argument and make them realize that, hey, these are apex predators. You're going to have issues, you know, and here's the other side. And it had to flip that coin and use the same thing. We still have all the facts, but you have to make somebody who doesn't care about wildlife management care about this issue. You know, I can let Evan talk about how we slowly ramped up those emotional things, but, you know, using polling and data and being able to get into, get into the populations that are going to move the needle. You know, the messaging can work for all these different groups and age classes and, you know, demographics, but you got to find where it's not moving. And that's where Evan and his team do a fantastic job finding out what's going to move that needle and sway that vote. And how do you find that out? Polling. I mean, obviously, we want to do a, a, a high level of, of public opinion polling to not only understand the messenger side of things, who who is a credible messenger, but also what what messages actually move the needle, right? We, you know, we go into these campaigns, and we've, we've got a lot of history of doing them. So we have a pretty good gut sense of, you know, message X is going to work well here, and message Y might work well there, based on demographics and past history and past campaigns, like in the main campaign, we're, you know, 10 years later down the road, we're doing the second second round of this thing. Uh, so we have a pretty good idea of where to go, but that's not always right. And so we want to poll test those messages. We want to poll test the, the arguments, not only that, that we believe will work, but we also want to poll test what the other side's going to use. What messages do we believe they're going to use against us and see what that does to the general public, right? Because it, ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what message I think is best or what message volunteer Y thinks is best. A message that works the best is the one that changes the way people are going to vote. And when you're trying those out, do you feel that you have to enter into like the dirty pool world? <laughs> like, do you, do you catch yourself? Cause I think hunters do this all the time, man. Hunters are, are always using rhetoric that, that they don't actually believe. I think you have to be willing to, to say impactful messages, right? And you have to have a, be willing to tell an emotional story because you're going to be going up against emotional ads from the other side. Yeah, the minute you say the word heritage, you're talking about emotion. Right. I, and I think that's, that's one of the things that we saw in, in, in Montana specifically is, you know, the heritage message in Montana. The we should clarify what happened or just keep it focused to Maine for now because we'll, we haven't talked about like what okay. actually happened in, in, in the Montana story. So, so we could either introduce Montana yeah, we, well, we can. Okay. Um, or uh, Maine, though, has the same message. Yeah, I mean, with it's the same thing in Maine. We can woman. stick on Maine. Um, yeah. You know, at the bottom line, at the end of the day, talking about you know, these are these are historical practices. These are things we've always done. These are these are these are uh, methods and means that, that we've always used. That doesn't mean a lot to to you know a mom with three young kids in in suburbia. At the end of the day, you got you got to find a way to, to to impact her. What 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 matters to her? And so sometimes you have to look at messages that are a little bit stronger. You know, those, those folks are concerned about public safety. Those folks are concerned about what's going to happen to the bear population if it's left unchecked moving forward. If you take away 93% of the way we're harvesting bears in the state of Maine, what's going to happen to a population that from 2004 to 2014 damn near doubled? Yeah. With the take. You know, they're, they're, they were already talking in, in 2013 and 2014 about about expanding main seasons and expanding the opportunity there and potentially going to two bears. To account for the rise in bear numbers. Yeah. yeah. So now you take away 93% of the way you're taking bears, what's going to happen moving forward? We already had, you know, one of our TV commercials was filmed in downtown Portland where they had a bear in the backyard. They, the, the wardens had to come down and remove the bear. Yeah, well, that yeah. I mean, I think that there's a fair way to... I think it would probably be statistically, it'd probably be like a little bit unfair to say bears are going to come kill all your children 
Because I don't know when Maine's last black bear fatality was, but they're not that often. No, black but, bear the, but the thing about, but the thing about just conflict and the cost to taxpayers of doing all that conflict work is enormous, but that might not be something that registers as emotional. No, no, absolutely not. And so you look at like, you know, you look at, yeah, the deaths are, are extremely rare nationally, but there are, there are instances where there are bear attacks. You know, we had one in Florida that happened right before, um, right before the main campaign. There's, there's attacks. There was one in Colorado here recently, a couple of years ago, I believe. Um, there, there are some of these attacks that happen. And, and so you ask the question of, as bears start to move back down into the Portland suburbs, and Portland's growing. I mean, Portland's becoming a, a suburb, you know, now almost of Boston, right? I mean, you got people that are moving up into southern Maine. The demographics have changed dramatically over the last 10 years. Yeah. There are going to be additional conflicts moving forward a, a, as the air population increases unchecked. So it's, it's about how do you keep those checks in place? How do, you, how, do you, how do you convince voters that they need to do this for their own good? A lot of people are going to vote their own, their own uh, perspective. And so what's in it for them? There's a public safety aspect to this. You know, the, the message isn't necessarily bears are going to come eat your children, but there is a public safety idea that you've got bears running through schools, you've got bears in backyards, you've got bears wandering around suburban neighborhoods. There can be problems that arise from that. Yeah. But, the, but one of the things you guys did uh, that wound up causing more trouble and causing another lawsuit wasn't really an emotional appeal is that you were using the state you had state fish and game agency people who were opposed to this ballot initiative speaking about from their perspective why they didn't support it. Can you yeah. tell that story a little? So that's, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the, the third leg of this, which is the lawsuit side of it. So we, our campaign, when I say we, I mean our campaign paid for the TV advertising. We filmed the commercials. We wrote the scripts. We did all the polling. The state wasn't doing any of that. The state wasn't involved at all in, the, in that part of the process. You know, the state was obviously concerned about the, the, the issue, uh, they had concerns about the implications of of what the what it would look like on the management side moving forward if it were to pass, but they weren't involved in the campaign. They weren't involved in any of that because they could not be, or they just weren't both. Okay, yeah, both. Um, but we did have them in the commercials, right? These were these were state employees on their own personal time. They had clearance from from the administration to appear in the the ads. Okay, they weren't instructing people how to vote. They were just telling people that they were concerned. They had they were opposed to the measure themselves. Um, because they were being, they were, they felt as though they were being stripped of their management authority. Yeah. Yeah. And so what would be like, can can you give me an idea of what, just one example of what a state employee might've said about the ballot initiative? Yeah. So, uh, we've got right, actually right up there on the wall there. You can see the, 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 the picture from the, 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 the TV shoot we did, but they main, basically the message was Maine's game wardens and bear biologists oppose uh, measure one. The bear biologists. Yep. Yeah, they were both together. And and that pissed off HSUS. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And so, the, you know, they obviously thought that there was misuse of... that's hard to argue, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you know a very I mean? effective tool for us to have to be able to play. But they felt like the state was spending money to produce these TV ads, and so they actually sued the state to you know, basically take the ads off the air in our, in our campaign, which is not an unusual tactic. You're talking about a campaign that is is, is being voted on in the early part of November, right? So you back that up six, seven, eight weeks, that's really when your TV ads are running. So it's a very short period of time that you're actually on TV uh, with your political ads. So if you can sue us and you can get our ads taken down for a week or two weeks or three weeks while we figure it out in court, that's a pretty impactful way to, to take, uh, take our messaging and, and, and undermine it. Yeah. 
Um, so obviously we went to court, we sued, or we, we, en- we enjoined in the lawsuit ourselves um, because there are ads, there are campaigns, it's not the state's ads. And we ended up winning, we ended up winning the lawsuit and all that kind of stuff. We kept our ads on the TV, but... So did, did you ever have to pull the ads? No. Did you feel that those ads were effective when you did polling? Yeah, absolutely. You can see it in the numbers. See, that to me feels like, that to me feels such a solid thing. But then I have a lot of, um, you know, I have a lot of sort of like, like a, like a native faith in state wildlife management. Mm-hmm. Right? So that would speak to me, but I'm not the, I'm not the person you really need to change the mind of. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're a highly credible messenger, right? And so they're, they're a, they're a person that the general public's going to trust that they're, they're going to view as a, a voice of authority. You know, people look to the state fish and uh, wildlife agencies as, as experts and they should. These are the guys who have the day-to-day management of these species and are doing a fantastic job. At the same time, though, they have to say the right thing. They have to say the right messages that are, are going to be impactful. They can't just say, oh, trust us, we've got this. That's not going to be enough to change that. Again, I go back to the soccer mom in Portland, right? It's not going to be enough to change her mind. Yeah. All right, let's jump along to the – man, there's a lot I want to talk about. Oh, you know what? <laughs> here's another interesting one, man, the, another main one I want to bring up. Because even though we're talking about stuff that already happened, I think it's really informative for people to understand. It's almost like more informative – to understand how it plays out, right? Because how, how it's, it's informative to understand how these things played out from start to finish in order to begin understanding like what will happen in the future, right? So it might seem like we're talking about like, oh, it already happened, who cares? But it's, it's illustrative of, of something. And another main issue that I thought was really interesting was the issue with links in Maine. So here you have a, an ESA protected species in Maine. Mm-hmm. And someone comes up with the idea to say, hey, you know what? No one should be able to trap in an area that could potentially have lynx because you might accidentally catch a lynx. That's right. And if you accidentally catch a lynx, it'd be an ESA violation or, you know, we'd like to make it an ESA violation. So therefore, let's stop trapping anywhere with lynx. And you brought up an interesting point in, in, in some of your materials that you, that you put out to the public that like with that line of thinking, you could close fishing in a river where an ESA listed fish happened to be present. That's right. So it becomes like a really important fight. Like someone might look at it and be like, Oh, it's like this really detailed policy thing, but it's not, it's just kind of a way to, it's to a back, like a special little twist on something, a little backdoor attempt to get at something a little bit broader, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we're, we're not going to sit here and argue that, yeah, we want to see a whole bunch of, of federally protected lynx species killed um, by trappers. No, that's not the argument. The argument is that at the end of the day, most of the lynx that were, were caught were being released unharmed, right? And so if you have a, a, a few lynx that are caught incidentally to other trapping seasons that are going on, that doesn't have a population level impact, even if the species is. Uh, federally threatened or federally endangered. That's not having a population level impact on the, on the lynx species as a whole. But if you use that line of thinking, like you said, you can expand that pretty quickly to other things where you can say, okay, well, there, there are endangered wolves in the area and they, they are about the same size and look like coyotes. And, you know, it gets back to the wolf discussion too with, with, with you know, this idea that there are two wolf species uh, in the eastern part of the U.S. There's the... Um, one that is very, very, this isn't the antis theory, right? But there's one that is, is, is very rare, looks identical to the Western Great Lakes gray wolf. The only way you can tell them apart is genetically. Well, if, they, if you have a wolf subspecies or endangered species of wolf that's separate from the Great Lakes uh, gray wolf in the same area as the gray wolf, 
how could you ever possibly allow a hunting season? Yeah. So you can see how they can take these arguments, and if they can get that established in, in case law, in, in, in the lynx lawsuit, then you can apply it to other areas, whether it's, it's fishing or whether it's, it's hunting for other species. So what happened with the what happened with the lynx situation that they put out? So we've had we've had numerous lawsuits on this. There's been at least two rounds of of uh, of lynx lawsuits in in Maine. There's a, there was a lynx lawsuit in Minnesota. Um, this really dates back to started probably 2006 2007 timeframe, and has been litigated over the years since then. Um, we've had some favorable outcomes. The trappers have had to put some stuff in place that would help to uh, ensure that they don't unnecessarily catch additional lynx. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line is I think the population is at a, at, a, at a level now where you'll see the Fish and Wildlife Service start to move forward with, with a delisting effort and, and, and getting them back off the ESA. The adjustments that the trappers had to make, is that just like how the, what kind of trap and how those traps are placed? Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, that, that's an interesting thing with, I want to spend some time on this later, but, it's, but since it came up, it's an interesting thing with how we sort of um, the ways in which sportsmen can kind of cooperate to alleviate issues like this. Like, for instance, when you get into um, that, you'd be able to release and you know if you had a bycatch incident trapping, like you, you caught a lynx in an area where you're not allowed to retain a lynx, that you would take steps to modify your equipment to enable you to release things unharmed and it comes down like really like technical stuff like jaw thickness right right like like a lot of trappers you know will laminate the jaws on their trap to increase the like to increase the surface area okay adding inline adding inline swivels so you have like a trap is staked out and you have a chain that connects to the trap and you have a swivel at the trap base you have a swivel at the stake and guys will add inline swivels into the chain so there's all these little steps that a person can take right to do it and now and then someone would come in and say you know what we're gonna mandate that trappers take certain steps that doesn't that that, that doesn't decrease the efficacy of the equipment some would argue actually increases the efficacy of the equipment and then you have to weigh out like okay is this like big brother stepping in to tell me how to conduct my business or is this something that's actually going to enable me to conduct my business long term and that's the thing that i think a lot of sportsmen have to look at when these kind of issues come up man yeah and for for a lot of it in this case specifically um it comes down to another it seems like all this stuff comes back to endangered species act policy but there's a there's a there's a method in the endangered species act where you can allow for the incidental take of of protected species it's called an itp incidental take permit mm-hmm. and so what we saw in the in the main links case specifically was the state of maine applied to the federal government said look we've got this issue we know that we're having uh there's the potential and, and trappers are are incidentally catching links um the, it, if the feds will issue that permit it basically is a it basically precludes them then from prosecuting those folks under endangered species act violations yeah and, and as part of that application process and part of the uh, awarding of that of that permit from the the fish and wildlife service there are there are typically steps or concessions that are made to uh, assuage those con- concerns got you so there's a bit there's a bit of a back and forth on what it's going to take to make it yeah. to allow it to go through. An interesting point that came up when I was looking at the links issue in Maine was here here was that an HSUS issue primarily, or was that coming from another source? No, I don't believe HSUS was the main uh, litigant in that case. I want to say that was Animal Welfare Institute okay. um, or Animal Protection Institute. I can't remember which was which, but they've been involved in those cases over the years. 
in a case like that, you have someone presumably like feigning a great interest in the well-being of the lynx with a concealed goal or a camouflage goal of just like hindering trapping activities. But it brings up an interesting thing where there was a loss. This is the cormorant issue in Oregon mm-hmm. where there's perilously low stocks of salmon returning from rivers into the ocean. Right. And there was a situation where they were trying to control cormorant numbers. They were killing cormorants in an area to enable greater returns of salmon. So a cormorant is a fish-eating bird. They're pounding salmon returning out of the ocean from rivers. So to alleviate the pressure from the cormorants, there was a project where they were culling cormorants to increase salmon returns. And there you have lawsuits to prevent them from doing it. So here you're trying to you're trying to use a management tool to help an imperiled species. Yeah. But that action gets flagged and gets sued against. And so you have to ask like it, it kind of reveals that sort of bias, it reveals the thing that you're not really we're not really talking about wildlife well-being here That's in right. a long-term sense. We're talking about some it's a proxy argument. What we're talking about is like you're just opposed to certain kinds of animal deaths caused by certain kinds of people, particularly people who are paying money to go do it. Right. Licensed people who would, might be deemed like recreational. That's, sure. That's the greatest, you know, irony is that they want to stop hunters from paying into a system that supports conservation that ensures the long-term viability of these species. But at the end of the day, when they actually accomplish that, now we're paying the state to take that place and they take on that burden. And they don't seem to have a problem with it. The animal's still dying. You're still having conflict, but now you're doing it with a debt. But the other thing is who's paying, right? In that synthetic situation that hopefully we never get to is like there's going to have to be something put in place to fund the state agencies. They don't don't do that. I mean, you take the California mountain lion stuff as as a perfect example you know uh, mountain lion hunting is banned there now they issue four times as many uh, depredation permits and they're killing more animals more mountain lions than they did before but there's no hunter paying for a tag now the state has to go out there pay for people to do it or issue the depredation permits and then they have to have necropsies on top of that so now you got now they're operating operating at a, at a loss, at a deficit. Yeah, it's and like there they, was no funding mechanism in in the ballot initiative to fund to the necropsies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now your they salmon scenario is like you're talking about state of Washington, right? No, this was happening in Oregon, but it was a suit against the it was a suit, I believe, against the Coast Guard for killing cormorants. You know, it they, they would that. use a euphemism, culling cormorants from that were preying on salmon smolt returning yeah and wasn't going, not returning going out into the ocean for their feeding cycle i think it's the wildlife services of uh not coast guard right was it wildlife service i, th- I think it's their yeah but that i mean that's such a messed up situation over there too because what we don't have diminishing salmon returns because of the cormorants the cormorants are taking advantage of a giant system that we've put in place through many man-made sure there's there's many factors it's a, i mean it's, that, a, that's it's a, a way deep conversation yeah, yeah. we yeah. caused hu- yeah, we've created a human caused there's a human caused problem 
that we've created with damming and habitat destruction and other things to create a situation where now we just have to stop the bleeding. Right. So, and we got yeah. sea lions taking advantage but, of but it. But it's but it's <laughs> to have your right? but, but like, to have your perspective but your perspective winds up being like a little bit cynical because here we have a thing like yeah, we created a huge problem with salmon, okay? It's going to take a lot of public and political will to fix the underlying problem. In the meantime, you just have to try to keep the thing breathing. Yeah. Salmon and, being the thing breathing. So when people then go like oh, uh, you know, the problem is dams. And so now you're trying to like do these little micro adjustments. Yeah. You need to do anything you can to just have something be there while we take the decades necessary to take care of the long-term main problem. I don't think that, I don't think that our inability to fix the main long-term problem means that we shouldn't look at little micro adjustments we could make to kind of immediately aid the situation. I think that stock should be taken though. Be like, yeah, do you know why we are killing cormorants? Do you know why all these uh, sea lions are gathered at the base of this dam? Yeah. You know why we have so many? Okay, so you feel, this is a side argument. Excuse me, guys. At some point, it, it, we can't take down all the dams. I mean, we depend upon them for hydroelectricity and everything else. So at some point, it is a, you know, weighing. Yeah, you and know? if you want to weigh it even more, you'd be look at that. It's infinitely deep. That's why I feel like yeah. you should, and, and I know that, that we, this country a long time ago decided against, rightfully so, decided against putting unnecessary restrictions on voters. But in a draconian sense, I feel like we need to go back to voters need to be able to pass. When, when I, think, I just think it should only be on wildlife issues. Voters need to go pass <laughs> a very stringent test about what's your understanding of wildlife history. And you know it well. I'm not saying you don't know it well. But if you, if you want to spend time getting into the cormorant thing. I just thing, think stock should be taken. Like people, when okay, they say, yes. okay, we're going to kill these cormorants. And just so you know, the reason they're piled up right here is because X, Y, Z. Please keep that in mind. Yes, I agree. It would be nice if everyone was infinitely aware of all the factors at play but the thing that people do and you're doing it right now is acting like that because there's a bigger underlying problem it makes it that we can't morally address micro issues yeah yeah i guess i'm not worried about the mic yeah i don't know you're saying we made these dams and we did the habitat destruction and the industrial pollution. And so, therefore, we should be made to suffer and we should let salmon go extinct. Just to remind us of how awful we are. That's taken a little far, I do think. Because <laughs> I'm not anti-bonking some cormorants in this issue, right? Like, I want the salmon to exist. But I think that should just be included in the campaign, right? Like, this should be a hey. sign. We are killing these cormorants because we have destroyed these rivers. Yep. <laughs> Our decision 60 years ago, 100 I mean, years ago. It, it highlights the challenge of wildlife management, right? And this idea that things just don't happen in a vacuum. It, yeah. It, yes. we, we wanted to still stuff down to, you know, good versus bad, black versus white. You know, these issues are, are highly complicated. And you look at, you know, another example, you, you raised the question of whether or not, how, to me, this is the question I've been struggling to, to write a story about. But the animal rights and anti-hunting community, in certain instances, elevate one species over another, right? And so in yeah. this case, cormorants versus salmon. I'll give you another one. What about wolves versus moose in northern Minnesota? Yeah. So at, at the same time that they're pushing lawsuits to keep wolves federally protected that have recovered and have blown past recovery goals, the moose population in northern Minnesota is crashing. 
Now, is that all because of wolves? No, absolutely not. There are other environmental factors that, are, that play into that, but there's certainly a, an impact from wolves. And so how in their minds are, do they square the idea that we're going to keep wolves federally protected and continue to sue for that, even though they've, they've blown past recovery goals, at the same time we're seeing it have a direct impact on other species in the area. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're willing to let moose walk. That's a great, that's a great segue. Cal and I will pick this up later in private. <laughs> we'll pick this up later in public. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save terms and conditions apply hey everybody i'm talking here about montana knife company from our very own state of montana this company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world josh smith who over recent months i've become friends with and my god have i learned a lot about knives from this guy just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world renowned knives josh has been making knives for 30 years you get one of these knives up and open it it is sharp like something that came from outer space and here's the deal they make knives that can be sharpened you can work on these knives if you don't want to work on them you send it to them and they'll work on it they'll get it sharp phenomenal hunting knives if you want to see them in action we just did uh me and uh john hayes the taxidermist just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly 
to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Can you give like a mile-high walk through on Great Lakes, the Great Lakes Wolves situation? It's difficult for people to follow because there's a lot of twists and turns, and I don't want to get too... I don't want to get so um, deep that we lose people, but just a general sense of how the conversation has gone and where it is right now. So you're talking about a, a multi-year series of lawsuits, right? This goes back to mid-2000s. It's been through the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration. Multiple different times over that, over that 10, 12, 14 years, presidential administrations have moved to delist recovered species of gray wolves in Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Each time the antis have sued, each time the antis have taken into court, and, and each time they've gotten a federal judge to overturn the, the delisting for, for various reasons. So where we're at right now is that we just wrapped up a, a lawsuit last year, uh, the, the final round of this lawsuit, I'm hopeful, uh, that basically issued a ruling that was both good and bad for our side, right? The ruling said, yes, you can do uh, the delisting of wolves, we're talking about distinct population segment policy of the Endangered Species Act, is really what we're dealing with here. The broader question was, is can you use the Endangered Species Act to delist a distinct population segment of a broader national listing? Wolves were listed nationally as a matter of convenience under the ESA back in late 70s. 70s. Yeah. Um, they were listed nationally because it was, just, it was just a matter of convenience back then. There wasn't a DPS policy in those days. Since then, we figured out that, look, we're not going to have wolves recovered in their entire historic range. Nobody's calling for that. We're not going to have them in Seattle. We're not going to have them in Chicago. That's not a reasonable expectation for delisting. We, 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 we appealed the latest round of rulings because the federal judge in Washington said, unless and until wolves are recovered in their entire historic range, they can't be considered recovered in the upper Great Lakes states. So it doesn't matter how many wolves you have in the, in the UP. If they're not back in their entire historic range, they can't be considered recovered, which is ludicrous. Yeah, it, when, when we talk about this in other contexts, and when I'm talking about this, I always like to point out that elk are only recovered in about 10 to 14% of their range. Absolutely, yeah. So it would be like saying, we're not going to hunt elk in Colorado, which has, what, 250,000 elk? We're not going to hunt elk in Colorado because we haven't recovered elk in Ohio. That's right. That's right. And that's ultimately what you're getting down to. Here's a question of law is that when you use the Endangered Species Act, when you use the distinct population segment policy of the Endangered Species Act, are you talking about historic range? Are you talking about current intended range, right? Are you talking about recovering wolves in these states? Are you talking about recovering grizzly bears in these areas? Or are you talking about the entire historic range? Because under, under that status, and you're right, elk aren't recovered yet. And so how could you possibly have a hunting season on elk if they're not recovered everywhere? Yeah. And that's the argument they're wanting to use on wolves is that, well, they're not recovered across the entire historic range, so how can you possibly have a hunting season in Michigan? Well, they're recovered in Michigan. They are. I mean, nobody's arguing about the population science. Nobody's arguing about the data. They're arguing about arcane policy, the Endangered Species Act, and trying to apply that to the situation. Because at the end of the day, if they were very truthful about what they're going after, they don't want a wolf hunt. 
That's it. It's as simple as that. They want to preclude a wolf hunt. And so how do you do that? You use these federal tools to tie you up in court for a decade, decade and a half and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight the litigation. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, they, they the delisting went through. I mean, I don't know how many times. Like, how many times has the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, how many times has the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recommended delisting where the delisting happened for a moment and then management policy was stripped away? Like just in the last few recent years. It's been like a season. Like three like, or four or five times. It's happened across. The, it was in the Bush administration and the Obama administration and now in the Trump administration. And in each of these cases, the federal management agency. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the one that oversees ESA protected species. That's right. In each of these cases, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is saying it's time to delist. Right. Where do the states fall on it? Well, the state the states agree a lot. A couple of the states moved to to open uh, their own hunting seasons, but they they don't have a lot of power. Um, they're in the lawsuits as well, but they don't have a lot of power to to uh, allow for seasons or allow for incident or for for take uh, while they're federally protected. So they're involved in the lawsuits that they want to see them delisted. The states want to have them returned to state management like they should be. You know, that's the way the, the ESA was intended to to, to be uh, applied. Right? It wasn't intended to be this Hotel California policy where you can check in an animal onto the list and it never can check out. That's not the way it was intended to be. It was intended to be used as a tool to recover imperiled species, get them back to health, and then return them to state management. But the antis don't see it that way. In the animal rights community, they don't see it that way. You know, you talk about charismatic, charismatic megafauna, right? These are these species they want to protect in perpetuity. And, and that's one way to do it. If you can keep them listed as a, as a federally protected species, then you can't have hunts on them. Yeah, but they, they, only resist, they only resist the delisting of species that might, potentially, that, that might potentially become a game animal. That's right. Like no one, you know, when, when we went to delist the bald eagle, it was a great celebration because there's no historic use pattern of like, you know, using bald eagles as a renewable resource. Yeah. I mean, outside of, outside of certain Native American groups. Sure. They would use them for ceremonial purposes. So sure. it was like, there was no risk. I think that from their perspective, it winds up being they want to block any animal moving off the ESA list that might potentially, that might potentially. It's you know, a tool to preclude hunting. Yeah. And so ultimately, I mean, you, you look at the ESA, and we can we can debate ESA policy for for weeks, right? And we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, you talk about an endangered animal is one that is in 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 danger of ex- going extinct um, in all or significant portion of its range. A threatened species is one that it w- will will meet that standard in the foreseeable future. Those don't apply to wolves. That doesn't apply to grizzly bears in the yellow, greater Yellowstone area. These species have recovered, and if the populations start to slide, there are tools in the ESA that allow for emergency uh, protections to be put into place. So at the very core level of this, these animals no longer meet the definition of what is a protected species. And what's interesting about the, some of the ESA species, too, is we mapped out what recovery would look like before we achieved it. Yeah. Like where everyone said, like even in the absence, in some places, even in the absence of certain species, we said, okay, like, uh, what would a, what would success look like? Yeah. We paint out this roadmap of what success would look like, down to kind of like excruciating detail. Sure, and then we blow past those benchmarks, and people are like, "Yeah, but yeah, but I didn't really mean it." It's, mm-hmm. it's moving that goalpost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't really moving that goalpost. I didn't really mean it. You, you also know? hear a lot. Uh, well, you just want to see that so you can hunt them, and yeah. my response is always, 
that is the best case scenario yeah. if you love this animal. Yep. Yeah, that would mean if you have like a huntable population, that means you're doing pretty good. It means they're recovered. Yeah. It should be celebrated. If it's it about wildlife. It means there's wildlife. focus on them. Yeah. There's dollars going to them. Right. And it's this is, sustainable. This is right. where we get into our idea of hunter-vationist, right? Like, okay, we get to this point. Now there's dollars going in. We're hunting them. It's conservation. It's taking place. And that's kind of our little term we've coined is hunter-vationist, you know? And, and that's what's happening when you get to that level. It would happen with grizzly bears, with wolves, whatever. Um just stepping back, yeah, they don't they don't uh, oppose the red-bellied creek chub getting delisted. It's these megafauna, as he said. I, I like to use the idea of uh, the bigger the eye and the longer the eyelash, the greater the outrage. Yeah, you know? and then mm-hmm. they can fundraise on that. They can piggyback and fundraise on that and use that to fund all these lawsuits that they stretch this stuff out. Meanwhile, the sportsmen were cobbling stuff together. Does you a know? cormorant have an eyelash? <laughs> a salmon, salmon, damn sure don't. <laughs> salmon don't have one. That's why they're being sacrificed to the cormorants. <laughs> so bringing this back to your original question, because that was kind of a long answer to where the wolf situation stands today. So we fought these lawsuits time and time again. And the latest round, like I said, was a good news, bad news story, right? For the immediate future, wolves remain listed as a protected species in those states. But the court did come back with a very clear pathway for the Fish and Wildlife Service to delist wolves appropriately in their view, right? If you follow these steps... Then, then we would find that, that, that you have basically done this correctly. What is, what is the scope of those steps? Oh, boy. There's, I mean, I'd have to go back and pull it up. I don't have it off the top of my head, unfortunately. But there, there's a pathway there that basically says, you know, you need to do, the, do it appropriately. If you, if, you, if you consider these factors, right, we talked about range earlier. You don't have to, you don't have to necessarily uh, show that they have recovered in their entire historic range, but you have to consider that impact on its current range. Yeah. And so some things like that where you have to go back and, and the court basically went back and gave them this, this clear pathway that says, go do the delisting effort again and do it via these, these, these methods, and, and I think you'll be okay. Um, am I correct right now, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, none of those states has had any kind of wolf season for a couple of years now, right? Right. Yeah. And the most that any of them had one for was a year or two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it was just one season, actually. I'm not sure. 2014, maybe. How long do you think, like, when they laid out that path to that path to state management, is that a a decades long path, or could it be much shorter than that? Ultimately, it would depend on the litigation, right? So, the Fish and Wildlife Service at this point is is moving forward with that process. I think you'll see a delisting effort out of the uh, the service maybe yet this year. It'll depend on what kind of delisting they, they, they issue, what kind of order it is, uh, do they check the boxes correctly, and how creative can the other side get uh, in suing to stop it. Um, if the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, meets all the criteria that's set out in the, the court's ruling, then they probably have a pretty good chance of having it upheld. But I would, be, I would be very, very surprised if we don't see those same groups line up to sue, regardless of what they put out there. So... Okay. So you're back into court can there for ever at least be a, a year, probably. Can there ever be an end? Yeah, there can be. Ultimately, we'll get to a point where this thing comes to a head, but we're... Like, I mean, it's, does it come to the head? To co- does it have to go to come to a head at the Supreme Court? No, I don't think it'll get to that level. Okay. I think I think we're probably... I think we're in the home stretch here. I think we're rounding third and headed for home. Is that right? It's, yeah. it's you know, this this latest round of... Uh, it'll, it'll depend on what the service puts out. You know, we, we don't know what they're going to do. Um, if they come back and check the boxes correctly, then I'm sure there'll be a, there'll be a lawsuit... 
will it last six, eight, ten months? I don't know. You know, these things tend to be you know, typically a year long to, to multiple years long, depending on how many appeals there are. If they do things correctly, I would think it'd be a pretty short, uh, short window of the of the lawsuit, right? There's not going to be a lot of appeals. There's not a lot of stuff to appeal then. Um, so you're talking about a, a delisting order by the end of the year, a public comment period, and then off to court. So you're probably looking most of 2019 going to be eaten up with this, and maybe right? by 2020 we'll have wolves back off the list. I don't know. That's just a guess. Yeah, you know th- there is some th- there is some validity to the question about what are the implications for delisting a little segment of wolves or grizzly bears or lynx or what have you. Like, what does that mean for everywhere else? Like, I think it's a legitimate question because if you look at an area that I'm infinitely more familiar with would be the grizzly bear delisting in in portions of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming. Because mm-hmm. on one hand, you know, the state management agency in Montana, for instance, is has you know expressed the idea that we should maintain the idea of genetic exchange between these different isolated populations of grizzly bears right it's a goal to have connectivity between what's called the northern continental divide ecosystem and the greater yellowstone ecosystem so that's a goal that you would have a place for bears to freely move back and forth and it is an interesting question if you get to where you have absolute saturation of grizzly bears in these certain areas and you're going to have increased likelihood of human bear conflicts and you have a variety of reasons to want to go to state management and some limited amount of hunting you do really have a responsibility to look at like okay what does this mean to our other our other objectives because the state people need to understand the state agencies that are wanting to have state management of these recovered resources are certainly not anti grizzly they're not anti-wolf right they're trying to like do something that's very nuanced you know control in certain areas open up public involvement in it but also allow for some managed expansion of the resource it winds up being like it's like it's not easy no it's it's the great balance question right where do you where do you draw the line to balance this situation out if you try to connect the northern continental divide population with the greater yellowstone population you're running right up through Helena, Missoula. Like yeah. you're, run, you're running right up through the population centers of, of Montana. You know, what does that look like in, in conflict terms? Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're inviting additional conflict at that point, but, but there can be arguments made on the other side that there are, there are needs for genetic diversity and other things that must be balanced as well. This is ultimately the great challenge for wildlife managers for every, any species is, is how do you find the appropriate balance between the resource, the user base, and the general public? And for those people who are just like really deep into this, it has to be so frustrating when these issues come up and it winds up being like waged out through these kind of emotion-based campaigns. campaigns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can just imagine like when you've devoted your life to these like, to balancing out these complex things and then all, then your life's work just vanishes in a second. It's all reduced down to a meme on Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's, it's reduced. You look at BC, right? I mean, BC is a great example of that. It's, it's reduced down to the ability to get rid of a hunt because they use the word trophy in a poll, right? You, you poll a question of, you know, how do you guys feel about a trophy hunt for grizzly bears? Well, of course people are going to have a negative reaction to that term. You know, people support hunting by wide margins in the country, as you said earlier. That's regulated hunting. That's the idea that there is there is a, a state management system. People view that public, public the public views that differently than when you say, "How do you feel about trophy hunting?" It doesn't matter if you define them exactly the same. They're not asking that question. They're just asking, "What's your visceral reaction to those two separate questions?" The poll results are going to be are, are, are going to be very different. 
Yeah. Okay. You guys cool to move on in our thing? You got, are you still seething? Are you seething? I'm not seething. I just got, I got a, little, a lot. He's all damned up. No, I'm not. Well, Cal loves no. fish. Cal loves uh, loves fish. Um, but you ready to move on? Yeah, let's move on. The I just see a lot of these arguments are always made in this blue sky world where the human population does not exist. That's right. <laughs> go, go ahead, please. And it's like, well, if we just let it happen, it'll all be fine. And I just think oh. people need to be reminded that we have screwed up this fishery for existence, or for example, from where these fish spawn 470 miles away all the way to where they're coming back into the ocean. So please keep that in mind when we're bonking these cormorants. You're back on that? <laughs> this is just an example, right? You... <laughs> That's an example. And, and these guys were nodding in agreement. It's like the arguments get made as if the human population is not here and expanding. Well, and that the other side does that, though. We just leave it alone and let nature take its course. Well, we can't. We manage everything from the ground up. Yes. And, you know, you got your, your habitat, your prey species, and your predator species. We can't just let a grizzly bear or a wolf run free and not manage it. I mean, it's like Bart Simpson at all. You can eat seafood buffet. It's going to go crazy and eat and keep reproducing. And now our prey species are out of whack. And the only result that they can do is reduce tags to hunters. And there goes the funding for conservation. So it's like the other side uses that argument of, Hey, we've, we've, you know, just let it go. We've impacted the land, let them do their thing. It's like, no, we manage everything. I mean, we kind of passed that moment like several hundred yeah, years ago yeah, yes. like, <laughs> in some areas. Unless we're all going back to following the herds and uh, tearing down the cities, you know, at some point, reality has to set in here. Now you good? All set. Okay. <laughs> uh, Callan, we, we, if you'd like, and you can, I'll, I'll allow you to, you can do, I'll allow you a guest oppor- a guest hosting position if you would like to arrange a discussion on um we discussed salmon in Alaska at length we haven't discussed Oregon Washington California you can arrange the whole show All right I got some good folks Okay Bonking Cormorant show I'm, It's going to be called <laughs> it's going to be called Bonking Cormorant the Cow <laughs> Uh moving into more in more recent time Oh, the cat, the cormorant thing. If you really want to get into something, there's an interesting story because cormorants were uh, ESA species for a while, and then recovered beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Yeah. And I think that some people still like aren't hip to what happened there. Oh, I think uh, you need a uh, real tasty cormorant recipe in order to change that thing around. <laughs> yeah. When when um, let me. To chime in here from Kevin Murphy, <laughs> please. Yeah, water turkeys is what we call them back home, <laughs> and they are a nuisance species. Uh, they have recovered in giant flocks, they destroy the remaining islands that we have out in the middle yeah. of uh, Lake Barkley, which was formed by Cumberland River, uh, Kentucky Lake, Tennessee River. Uh, they have become nothing but a nuisance. And it's kind of sad to see a, a an island that was out there with vegetation on it, and now it's got these black dots out there with this whitewash. It's, just a, it's, a all over it. it's like a rookery. Rookery, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we are fighting that issue back home to try to get, because the fish habitat is destroyed now, and the island is washing away down to the delta. 
Man. One of my brother's first jobs when he was becoming a fisheries professional was uh, yellow perch were vanishing from the Lachenau Islands area in the northern Great Lakes. And they went through this big project where they were netting yellow perch, putting these little markers in the yellow perch, and you wait a period of time, and then you go dig through cormorant scat trying to find your little markers to ascertain the cormorant impact on yellow perch. In that case, they learned that it, was, that it wasn't the problem. Same thing in Kentucky. Uh, through the League of Kentucky Sportsmen, the resolution was made to go in and do a sampling of the, of the cormorants out there. And a lot of the sports fishermen were thinking that they were impacting the sport fish. They found out they were eating the, the gizzard shad, uh, the non-game fish, ma- majority of them on there. But, you know, it's it doesn't – you don't have to do a study to see what they've done to the islands out yeah. there. So that, that that species needs to be a season on them, whatever, you know, we can do. Then we'll come up with some recipes after we get them in the, in the, in the hand. But, um, like I said, we saw that same thing in, in Kentucky just recently where they Yeah, a lot of fishermen are like uh, – I think a lot of fishermen look at cormorants and river otters all the time as being – like, if they're not having a good day fishing, damn cormorants. Or as they used to say in the UP, it was coomorants. <laughs> um, okay, the, li- the, 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 the lion, bobcat, jaguar issue Ocelot. in <laughs> Ocelot. Yeah, tell this story, because this is a new one. Arizona. So, I mean, the story is, 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 is going to be very familiar to the main black bear story, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a ballot initiative being pushed by the main state of the United States. It was supposed to be in the midterm elections or coming up in the... supposed to be on this fall's ballot. This yeah, November, yeah. The November ballot. Um, that was the intention. Uh, they didn't qualify the issue. There, there was some stuff done in Arizona to, to help them not qualify the issue. Uh, but it followed the same script. It followed the same you know, same pathway, right? They tried legislation. They weren't weren't able to do it. They started creating a PR campaign to kind of push uh, push a ban on, on these protected cat species, of which, really, the mountain lions were the target. Obviously, the rest were either already protected or didn't exist in Arizona. Those kinds of things. Yeah, it's funny. So they were. It was about mount. Like, if you look at the the early rhetoric, it was about mountain lions. Right. They they had a thing like the five most dangerous states to be a mountain lion. Yeah. Arizona so, was one of them. Colorado was one. Correct. Yep, Montana, yeah. Idaho. I think Utah. Utah. And Utah. Yeah. So that came on the heels of the cease of the lion stuff in Africa, right? Right on the right after, right after that kind of fervor died down. HSUS released the report called The Five Deadliest States for Mountain Lions, and they had some junk science in there and some stuff that just doesn't make sense. Uh, and they started pushing this PR campaign that we need to protect America's lion. They called it America's lion. Yeah. And pardon my interruption, but Brian, you um, pointed out that those are like the five states where mountain lions are doing the best. Yeah. yeah it's, it's got the best habitat and the best harvest. So, yeah, that's a good thing. But they, again, view it as it's the deadliest thing. Yeah, and so they flip it. And if you looked at their report, I'm using air quotes, um, it compared a 10-year harvest statistic to a one-year population statistic. So if you're the media looking, you're like, oh, my God, they're killing all of the lions out there. Oh, I guess. You know, and then they, you know, America, the top five deadliest states, as journalists and somebody who's worked in that world, lists are great things. People love it, especially for online consumption. So that got picked up by everybody and spread and they, all around. They didn't include that, that like, for instance, that Colorado has vastly more yeah. lions than ever before right yeah. now? No, mm-hmm. oh, no, yeah. no, no, they're not going to pr- include that stuff. It's just that emotional reason to take it away. But what was fun about it, they were talking about, it was like a mountain lion issue. 
but they made it like an all cat issue. And I think to extra confuse the situation is they included that it would be a ban on hunting or trapping for things that aren't in Arizona. The Canadian lynx. The Canadian lynx, which has never been documented in Arizona. And they threw in like jaguars, which are federally protected. Yeah, mm-hmm. and ocelots. Yeah, same thing. That are already federally protected. There's maybe, it would, I think that most people would be shocked if they were to learn that at this second right now, there's more than, I mean, 10 is probably a big number for how many jaguars yeah. mm-hmm. would be in Arizona. It might be closer to one or two. Yeah. But- it's just like a fun little twist to put that in there. Well, yeah, they, they, they can manipulate the media then. Then they can go after that emotional argument and say, they're killing endangered endangered cats. We want to stop this, you know, make sure to protect these endangered cats. And so, well, yeah, okay. Well, they're already protected. But or, this is taking or the next not step. even there at all. Or not even present. <laughs> well, the, the, the unique unifying factor of all five of those states that are the five deadliest, they're all five ballot issue states. They're all states where they get the, uh, the ability to... Uh, bring a ballot initiative if they want. Yeah, so it's uh, all five of those states are, are states that that gives them the pathway forward to bring a ballot initiative just like they did in Maine. You mean the way the state constitution set up? Yep. Okay. Yeah. It gives them the ability to, to put an issue before voters um, where some states don't allow that. Some states don't have uh, direct access to the ballot. So you feel that the, the, li- like the cat hunting ban in Arizona was an HSUS-led situation, though they didn't do it under their own name in Arizona. Yeah, but it definitely was. I mean, we have mm-hmm. the application that has their name on it with the HSUS email address when they registered it for the ballot. Mm-hmm. But what was the group they created to, to spearhead it? Arizonans for, oh, it's Wildcats, something Wildcats. Arizona's for wildlife, maybe. No, um, it was Wildcats. Wildcats, yeah. But that's what they do. They create a front group, and they have their state leader their state HSUS leader becomes the chairperson mm-hmm. and then they gather around that and they make, make it, it feel local and make it yep. feel local. It's not, I mean, they, it was 98% of their funding was something like 98% of their funding was directly from Washington DC HSUS headquarters. Okay. They just strike that pen. And to get it on the ballot, to bring it in front of the voters, you, to bring it in front of the voters, you have to cross a threshold. Signature gathering threshold, yeah. Signature gathering. What's that look like? So in most states, there's two ways you can qualify an issue, right? You can, you can convince the legislature to pass a bill by a wide enough margin that that'll directly put it on the ballot, or you can go out and collect signatures and meet a certain threshold of valid signatures, meaning the signature come from a person who lives in that county or lives in that legislative district. Typically, those those vary wildly, right? You know, in Maine, it was much smaller. It's a much smaller state. In Arizona, it was 150,000 valid signatures in that ballpark. So what you're typically looking at is you'll see the other side try to get above and beyond that because they know some of those signatures are going to be invalidated. They won't be from actual voters. They'll have the wrong address, those kinds of things. Only 150,000. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's shockingly low in a lot of these states what, it, what, what the, the threshold is to place a ballot uh, measure before the voters. Because, I mean, there's, what, three million-some people in Phoenix, right? Phoenix, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So what happened when, the, so, so they start gathering the signatures, but they, did, they didn't hit the threshold. They pulled out? They didn't. They, 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 they had some issues. Uh, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to the sportsmen down there. Uh, they, they, they organized together pretty well. Um, they came up with a game plan to, to defeat this thing, uh, and they ran their game plan, and they were successful. We went down and met with those guys uh, early on before the, the ballot initiative was even um, uh, launched, 
tell them, look, we, we're, we're seeing the, the tea leaves here. We can see the smoke. There, there's, a, there's a fire coming, right? You know, they've released this report. They've highlighted these states. If you look at the five states, we feel like Arizona and Colorado are probably the two most likely uh, targets. Because of Phoenix and Denver. Because of Phoenix and Denver, because we just gotten off the heels of winning the trapping issue in Montana, the ballot issue in Montana in 2014. So just a year after that. So we've already got a kind of a campaign infrastructure left up there. Uh, Utah has some constitutional protections against wildlife related ballot measures. Uh, we just looked at those kind of two states with the demographic shift that they've seen over the last 10 and 15 years, uh, the, where the populations are located. You look at Arizona, that's a tough place to do a, a ballot measure. 78% of the households in Arizona, the TV households, the viewing public, are in the Phoenix media market. So you're playing for one media market. That drives costs way up. Okay. So, you know, we, we look at these states, you can kind of, you can kind of predict where you think the other side's going to go, and they've, they're looking at their own data, and they're looking at their own plans and campaign ideas and trying to figure out where they're going to go. Um, but, yeah, the guys down there did a great job. They put together a campaign plan that was designed to try to put up roadblocks to keep them off the ballot. Um, ultimately, the other side didn't hire a signature gathering firm. They were unable to do so, and that, that, that drastically hurt their, their effort. Unable to do so for what reason? So there's only a limited number of signature gathering firms in Arizona, and, and, and the, the sportsmen were working with one of them already. And so that precluded them from working for the other side. And so what you're, what you're dealing with then is you have to bring in a signature gathering firm from another state. And that's not unusual, right? When, when they qualified the bear issue in Maine in 2014, HSUS used a group out of California to come up and do it. But in Arizona, there's a little bit higher threshold. There's this, okay, you're getting into stuff now that raises all kinds yeah. of questions. No, no in, the, in the best possible way. Signature gathering firms, meaning yeah. there are companies that specialize in getting legitimate signatures to move ballot initiatives. There's companies that make a ton of money doing that. Just tons of money doing they that. They just run the logistics. Yep. Do they run the media? No, no, typically not. I mean, typically, you see that done by other consultants, but typically these guys are in the business for, for, for qualifying issues, and they, every state's got them. Guns for hire. Yep. They go out there and hire, and you pay, some states you pay by the signature, and that's the interesting thing in Arizona, right? So Arizona passed a law that said you no longer can pay by the signature. So instead of saying, you know, for every signature that, that you get, we'll give you a dollar, and you, you don't, you're not paying a salary, you're not paying an hourly wage, you're just saying for every valid signature you get, we're going to give you a dollar or two dollars or whatever the case might be. In Arizona, you have to be an hourly employee. So that, that creates a level of infrastructure that okay. an organization has to have to be able to have those people be employees. You know, you got to do tax forms, you got to do this stuff, and you got to have HR and payroll and healthcare and all, all kinds of stuff, right? It's a little bit different standard than a lot of states. A lot of states don't require you to be an hourly employee. So that created a little bit more of a barrier and reduced the number of potential firms down to just a handful. Okay. And, and so, uh, you know, my, my, my opinion is that, that the other side got a late start on actually talking to these firms, right? They thought it was going to be an easier time to qualify than it was. They felt like they could do a better job with volunteers than they did. And, uh, you know, you can, one thing leads to another and you run out of time. And so they wound up having volunteers go out and set up out in front of a Whole Foods. Yep. What have you. Yep. I mean, to pull pick them out, but I just know that that was a place they were doing signature <laughs> gathering. And the zoo and wherever else, sure. yeah. Sure. And, Festivals, and a volunteer goes out there and starts gathering signatures. Yeah. Do you want to protect these endangered cats from being slaughtered by, you know, cruel hunters? And yeah. how many how many signatures did they hit? Uh, we don't know. Don't know, because they never submitted them, right? So they, they could have had 5,000, they could have had 120,000. The fact that they, they, they suspended their campaign leads you to believe they didn't have very many. Because they didn't even they didn't even submit the signatures to the state. They didn't they never crossed the threshold. Of, they didn't come back and say we've got, you know, ten percent more than we need, and we didn't get enough valid. 
it was an issue where they didn't have enough to even submit the, the minimum threshold. So okay. if every single signature that they had was a valid signature and they gave them to the state, you'd have to hit on 100% to get the issue qualified. It wasn't even that. They didn't have enough to even submit the base level signatures. How could, how in the case of Arizona, how were sportsmen, how, are you, how do you battle that? Because there's, there's nothing to battle yet. It's just like a, all they're doing is just they just have people out getting signatures. Yeah. Are, you, are you playing like a, like a like a PR game. You, you play a, to, to to game these one hundred and fifty thousand people that they they need to. Sure, there's there's different methods. There's different um, tactics you can use, right? Obviously, there's the main method, which was um, Maine as the state, which is, is is a campaign you're planning where you're basically raising a bunch of money to fund a TV advertising campaign that because you know the issue is going to qualify. Saying don't sign. Well, no, in Maine it was it was don't vote for it. Yeah, in but, Arizona, but yeah. in Arizona, what they went for was a decline to sign campaign, right? So they, they they did a bunch of PR around the idea of don't sign this thing. It's not what it is, uh, pretended or uh, portrayed to be. It's an outside group from D.C. It's not a, a local Arizona group. So they did a bunch of PR stuff like that. Do you think that was effective? It it can be. It can be. It certainly because um, it that, seems the threshold's so low. Yeah, the one hundred fifty thousand vote threshold is so low that you wouldn't. That, that you would get it from just – that you'd find like the, the – you'd have enough like radical fringe people to account for the – Sure. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it was successful this time. You know, there's some other stuff in there like like I said with the paid signature yeah, gathering yeah. issues and some of the other things the campaign tried to do. And the HSUS had a sex scam. That's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, Let's not forget the internal turmoil they had right at this time, you know, right uh, around Christmas first of the year. They had uh, Wayne Pacelli get – yeah. get caught up in the Me Too movement and the sexual harassment. And that's the last thing you want on a PR campaign is you're trying to go out there and do this when the other side can start pointing back and diverting, you know. But something to think about is right about that time, they stroked a $500,000 check for the campaign. So they've suspended this campaign, but it's still structurally there mm-hmm. with almost a half a million dollars in it that they can reignite at any time. So it, it's plausible, I mean, we'll never know what really happened. It's plausible that they hit up against a sexual scandal, just had to pull, rain everybody retract, back in, we'll, 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 we'll regroup, try, try again later. Yeah. Well, and you come back with a, with a longer timeline to get the signatures gathering done. You get a you get a firm lined up. You know, you, you do the stuff up front. It, it's it, it's a it's a short term victory. It's a good victory. Oh, we shouldn't belittle the idea that they were able to keep them off the ballot this year. But the question now turns to what does the future look like? What does it look like in 2020 or 2022 if they come back? What are we going to do to stop them a second time yeah. if they have a longer timeline? If they decide to throw instead of $500,000 at it, or if they throw $2 million at the qualification effort? You know, what are we going to do in, in the meantime to protect ourselves uh, against that future attack? And that's what hurts us as hunters a lot is, I mean, they're a $150 million organization. They can stroke that check, no problem. It's not a big deal. And our boots on the ground in individual states were all kind of fragmented. And for, you know, one state group of hunters to come up with one or two million dollars within a short period of time is a tough deal. And that's where they're taking this is the ballot and a money fight. And they've got it because they've got grannies throwing ten dollars checks at them for saving puppies that they're not saving. You know, to use Maine as the example, right? I mean, we just talked about it. It came up once, then incubated a little bit longer, came up again. Um, the Arizona example. So, I mean, what is, I mean, is there a educational campaign going on in the interim or to 
you know, both on the public and on the hunting side of things, or how does that play out? Because if this 500K is sitting in the bank waiting to drop in, what what is the proactive side of this from the sportsman's angle? So there's a lot of stuff you can do. Obviously, the PR side of it's important. You know, having that messaging out there, talking to the general public about you know, why these species need to be managed, why the appropriate management is done by the state wildlife agency. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is, is a reactionary game though, right? That's the, that's the great challenge of an organization like ours. We don't know what the issue is going to be next year that we're going to work on. I can give you a pretty good idea of what I think the fights are coming, but the other side really, uh, really controls the agenda in, in a lot of regards, right? They get to decide where and when they launch these attacks. So it might not be, it might not be Arizona next time. It might be Colorado. It might be Denver. You know, they might decide to go up and, and, and launch our campaign there. They might do both states at once. You know, we don't, we don't really know that. So from our side, it's, it's really tough to kind of project and predict, you know, well, if you just do X, Y, and Z for the next year, you'll be fine in Arizona. Well, they might not come back to Arizona. It might be 10 years before they come back to Arizona. But what the next attack might be in, in Colorado. And by and large, sportsmen don't like to think about these issues, right? Absolutely. No. We just want to be out there hunting, fishing, doing our thing. But this stuff pops up. We get motivated when the boogeyman's there. But if Immediate threats. But mm-hmm. if they're gone, all right, good. When's deer season coming up? <laughs> oh, we got 100 days? Cool. You've yeah. been shooting? How's it going? You know, that's, we forget about these things and move on. And it's a bigger issue in the industry. We're talking about it. You know, right after Cecil, there was a lot of different uh, people brought together to talk about how to be proactive and keep the next Cecil line from happening. And this goes back to our messaging is... How do you run an education campaign someplace? I mean, the messaging we get into on a ballot initiative is very specific, trapping on public lands in Montana and what's going to move the needle there. How do you apply that to hunting in general across the nation? I mean, and you don't know what which attack and it's going to be. Is it predators? Is it prey animals? What's it going to be? So that's a, a great... It's a great point, right? Because you can, you can public opinion poll people and ask them, who do you believe should be the primary managers of wildlife? And overwhelmingly, people will tell you the state wildlife agency. They should make the decisions on seasons and bag limits and this kind of thing, right? You can also ask them, do you want to ban black bear hunting over bait? And they'll tell you overwhelmingly yes. In their mind, they separate the two issues, right? You can ask them those questions back to back, and you'll see a, dispar- uh, a disparity between the two answers. And so general education, general, you know, I, general campaigns that just just espouse the benefits of hunting and, and and talk about the you know the benefits to wildlife and to populations and all this kind of thing certainly there's a help there. How do you quantify what that help is when it comes down to a specific ballot initiative? It's much more difficult to do that. And then hunters have a tendency to be really provincial. Yep. Where you tend to view when I say you hunters tend to view what they do in their act, what, like how they hunt, where they hunt as the acceptable norm. Mm -hmm. And they don't really view themselves as being players in a large national picture. That's right. Hunting is very regional. It's very cultural. It's very different, right? You used the example a few episodes ago of, of the deer dog hunters in the South. A guy runs through the woods up here with a pack of dogs after some deer. It's going to get some You're going to get shot <laughs> by a deer hunter. You'll be shot by a deer hunter. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the cultural norm down there. That's, that's the practice. That's the way they've always done it. And so those, I mean, just a few states over, those, those, those cultures can shift greatly. And so you try, you know, we talk about 14 million hunters or 12 million hunters as this collective group, but it's a collective group of, 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 of individual practices and individual cultures and individual 
you know, morals and ethics and, 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 and heritages. That's what I think. It's like, it's, well, it, it almost, I was going to make a point, but I'm going to also then talk about why my point's not really, doesn't really matter. What I was going to say is if you look at like a Wisconsin deer hunter, okay? So he's in, he's in part of a traditional use practice, hunting Wisconsin, where he's sitting in the ground blind in the corner of a field on the back 40. And he hears about, oh, they're going to ban the use of, of dogs for hunting deer down in South Carolina. It's hard to get that guy in Wisconsin to be like, man, I should probably pay attention to this. That's right. Because this is a broader thing that will, in my lifetime, come around to involve me. That's right. Um, it's hard to get him to feel it, but it's also hard to get him to be effective if he, if he does feel it because these things are playing out on the state level. But then you have a group like the HSUS, which is this national organization based in D.C., but they are going out and fighting these little fights, mm-hmm. these Death little fight. localized particular fights. So it's almost like hunters, fishermen, trappers need to become more interested in like gaming on the national scale and being more proactive and view and take the same approach, right? That we're going to wage small isolated small isolated fights in support of this bigger thing that we're involved in in our own local way. So I view it like this, right? You, you have to find, and this is, this is the struggle for us as an organization to grow and to find those members who care enough because you're talking about somebody, you have to, you have, to have them believe in the greater good. Because they're not going to have an issue in their backyard every single year. Yeah. You know, if you, if you have a hunter in California versus a hunter in Texas, you think one's going to be more concerned about the anti-hunting community than the other? Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you convince that deer hunter from Texas to care about a black bear issue in Maine? You know, these, these issues, these transcend state lines, you know, that you've got to go fight the battles where the battles are. You know, otherwise, their battles are going to show up in your backyard pretty soon. Yeah, like a guy in Texas sends money to the Sportsman's Alliance. He looks at where that money gets spent. It's probably not getting spent in Texas. Not off, not not that often, you know. But that's that's the issue, right? I mean, you either have to fight the battles where they are today, or or they're going to show up here eventually. Yeah. You see these things spread, right? You've seen you've seen trapping issues spread. You've seen the bear issues spread. You've seen the application of the these ESA policies spread. You know, if you don't take them on when they come up. You're just you're just opening the door for for issues 10, 15, 20 years down the road. You guys bring this up a lot in your publications. Is that once they win one win, mm-hmm. it, it just sets the precedent. It's a springboard, and, and, and yeah. so they just go in everywhere and going, look, we won here on this by you know these reasons in Maine. So why would you decide any differently? And yeah, it's a springboard. The other forty nine. It's, it's, it's an opportunity to point. So you guys aren't doing as well as they are. Yeah, you need to raise your standards. You have to do better. And you play one side off against the other. And we know that wildlife management is vastly different from, from, from Montana to Florida. There's vastly different issues, vastly different challenges. But for them, they're going to point to them and say they're not, they're not, com- they're not comparable. Yeah. That's what the heritage argument for me, I always cringe when it comes up because, man, there's nobody in this room that couldn't shoot a lot of holes through a heritage argument. Oh, yeah. Um, I see all the holes in it, but I also it also means something to me. It does because yeah. you are a hunter. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. That's the emotional side. And if side. we're talking to hunters, like, yeah, we can get hunters when that threat is immediate to jump on and, and get active uh, a lot of the times. But, you know, it's it's to me the management side of things – you know, pumping up our biologists and look at the science is is the win. 
but you know, how do you make that sexy enough for people to come out and say, yeah, that is, this is what makes more sense than. Yeah, I think unfortunately it's not always possible. It's not always possible to sexify. Is that a word? It's not always possible (laughs) to to sexify wildlife, the complexities of wildlife management. Okay, I got two more questions for you guys. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want... Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom aunt grandma whoever and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to okay it's easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving an aura as a gift You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, 
they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Um, one. How do you weigh out? Okay, you're defending hunting, trapping, fishing practices. But how do you weigh out what might seem to be a restriction? Um, how do you weigh out like where it's coming from? And for instance, in, in your newsletter, there's a sum up of legal activities going on. And you had a sum up of what state? Um, um, you had a sum up in, in Minnesota, for instance where there's a, a, a bill that would expand the definition of a muzzleloader to include a scope, okay? And someone might look and be like, okay, great, because that's like, I, I don't know. It's, it's like increasing efficacy of muzzleloaders, which one might proceed to be good for hunters because it increases efficacy and lets you do a better job. But we know in the case of when states started to adopt muzzleloader seasons, it was an add-on season. So it was a way to increase opportunity for hunters to be out in the field. What was interesting about muzzleloaders is they have low efficacy. So you could have your general firearm season where you're going to kill the vast majority of, of the deer that you're going to kill. But then you could have these add-on 10-day, two-week, three-week muzzleloader seasons. And because of the weather because of the difficulty of using muzzleloaders, you knew that it wasn't going to be a great additive sense in deer mortality. So you could increase opportunity for people who wanted to go hunt. They can spend more time in the woods. Everyone's a winner. It's not going to have a dramatic effect on your deer herd. Right? So that's what gave us muzzleloader seasons. So when we look, when a group comes in and says, when a state agency comes in and defines a muzzleloader in a particular way to have low efficacy, and then someone wants to move to be like, well, I want to put a scope on top of mine. How, how do you weigh it out? Because you might view it as being, well, that's an unnecessary regulation. That's like big brother telling you how to hunt. But it might be like, well, the reason we can have a muzzleloader season is because they have low efficacy. And if you increase the efficacy through technology, you're negating the whole reason of having the muzzleloader season. But it seems to be in your newsletter, you, were, you feel that this is a good thing to be able to add a scope to a muzzleloader. So how do you weigh that out? Because this is not coming from the animal, right? This isn't like an animal rights community issue. This is a game management issue. Well, it's certainly much more uh, clear cut when it is an animal rights issue, right? So when, when, it, when it is a state issue like this, you typically look to the sportsmen in the state to educate them and, and, and let them advocate for themselves. But you've, you've hit on the important kind of distinction here is that, yeah, there's the balance on the, on the biological side, which the state is going to look at anyways when it, when it manages deer herds and, and, and tries to project what that will do to the increase the take uh, during the muzzleloader season. But what also does it do on the opportunity side? You know, we've got a declining hunting population in this country. It's an endemic problem that we've been dealing with for, for multiple decades now. Um, you know, and so you have to kind of balance the idea of opportunity and access with the idea of, you know, are we, are we using a season that was originally intended for, for maybe something a little bit different than it is used for now? Are we going to change that by, by putting a scope on a muzzleloader? I don't know that there's a clear answer to it, right? I mean, I don't know that there's, you know, you can draw a clear line in the sand. 
you know, for us as an organization, we tend not to delve too deeply into those issues, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't mean to. I, yeah, I, I should be fair there. That this is not a marquee issue for you, right? Right. Well, it's like I mean, you know, it's 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 like the debate over bows and crossbows and whether crossbows should be in in the traditional archery season, you know, bow seasons, or whether they should have their own season, or whether they should be with firearms. For us as an but I feel, but that debate I feel is a, is a hunter debate. It is like yes. that debate is being carried out by hunters. It's not being carried out by hunters versus anti hunters. Often not right. That, absolutely right. So do you weigh in on those issues where it's hunters debating something? No, not typically, right? Because we're a small organization. We're a lean organization. We don't have a huge staff, right? We're we're one of the smaller organizations in the conservation space. You know, you look at some of these groups, RMEF and Turkey Federation. All these guys we partner with do great work. But they're massive organizations compared to ours. So for us, you know, we ha- we have to fight the fights that are, are are core to our mission. Our mission is to protect you know hunters from the anti-hunting and animal rights movement. Yeah. Um, you know, so certainly where where you have hunters united in in in, in unison on an issue, muzzleloaders or crossbows or or whatever the case might be in a state. We might be able to provide some support to that issue. We're typically not getting in into the sportsman versus sportsman debate on these things because we just don't have the bandwidth. Yeah, you know, we 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 have our hands full with with these lawsuits, with these ballot measures, and these legislative issues in the states. That if we could get to the point where we we got done dealing with all the animal rights and anti hunting crap, then yeah, we might be able to work on some other stuff like that. Because I, I also I view too like issues around technology okay so issues around trail cam use Mm -hmm. like is it to the point where we need to where where hunters would decide among themselves that we need to get a grip on trail cam use or hunters would decide among themselves that we need to get out ahead of drone use right i feel that those like that those debates are should enjoy like some kind of like sanctity or they should be allowed to play out in some sort of natural way rather sure. than rather than teeing them up or framing them up in sort of this anti rolling them into this sort of like anti hunting conversation. Cause I think that there are times we're going to come up with where we're going to be self limiting technologies in advancement of like the betterment of wildlife in general. Sure. Right. And we might make those decisions and someone on the outside may be like, Oh, that's an infringement on a hunter's ability to conduct his business. Or that's you dictating how a hunter should go. But we're already doing that. All- Anyways, we decided a long time ago not to fish with dynamite. Mm-hmm. So at the time we decided that we're not going to fish with dynamite anymore. Can you bonk cormorant with dynamite? I don't know if that doubt. I doubt they're using. Cal it. wouldn't like that. Hunt guns. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. at, the, at the end of the day, it comes down to management, right? So when we're kind of in these things, w- our position as an organization is leave it in the hands of the biologist. Yeah. Give him his tool chest. Let him have it. Don't take trapping away. Don't take baiting away. Don't take dogs away. Don't do this. Let him have it. If the biologists say, "Hey, we can't sustain this with you know the dog harvest we're going to limit this or bait is being too effective or having scopes on this leave it up to those individual biologists in those regions to do it give them their full tools though we're trying to keep the animal rights movement from taking those tools away yeah that that's a that's a you did a much better job of expressing what i'm <laughs> what i'm trying to say than i did but yeah it's yeah. um it's sort of like looking at where's the what are the motivations what are the motivations of who's, you know, providing this idea? Like, for instance, it's Montana has never had bear hunting for hounds. They've never had bear hunting 
with bait. That didn't come from the animal rights movement. That came from just traditional use practices and a deep legacy in that state. I would imagine that you don't look there and think that they're making a mistake, right? It's just like a thing that's always been. That's right. They have, uh, that, a, that's where they have a successful bear program, and it's just how it is in that state, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that's where the, the managers come in and make those decisions, and, and, and that gets back to the idea that, that wildlife management decisions are, are wildly local, too. Right, you know, it can vary wildly from from you know, from the the, the Helena Valley of of of, uh, of Montana down to the Bitterroot. Right, you know, the, you get over into Idaho, you get over into Washington State. There are different cultures, there's different practices, there's different heritages, and, and then you think about going from Alaska to Florida or from Maine to California. I mean, you're talking about vastly different habitats, vastly different cultures. Yeah, there can definitely be uh, differences there. And you just use that like that toolkit mm-hmm. idea, the management tools. Um, and that's another thing with this, this like very hotly debated federal preserve thing in Alaska, where Alaska has state authority to use certain management practices where they see fit. Yeah. And then the, the federal government comes in and says, we're going to remove certain tools that you have access to on specific pieces of land. And in the public telling of this, they would act as though these practices are rampant when in fact, the state usually decides not even to use the tool anyway. Yeah, yeah. The the thing, the whole Alaska preserves and uh, refuge stuff. If you watch HSUS Center for Biological Diversity and all these guys blow it up, it makes it sound like everybody's hired a plane. We're shooting shooting grizzlies from planes. Well, we're, we're going into, into dens. Uh, dens and gassing them all. All of these things were extreme management techniques for the state biologists to use. In case they needed it, and often indigenous groups, and in, and in, mm-hmm. and some of the indigenous stuff. Um, but from the state side, one one wolf and the uh, pups were killed in like two thousand nine. Used it once. Yeah, they killed they killed the uh, adult wolves. Found the den that had pups in it, and because they were in a high, uh, can't remember which disease it was area, they had to kill the pups. They couldn't take the pups and relocate them or put them in a zoo or anything. It was distemper, I think it was. And so they had to kill them. That's the one time these tactics had been used and HSUS and CBD and everybody else blew it up like sportsmen go up there and, you know, are drinking beer and shooting out of a plane and crawling in dens with them and Which is, strangling pups and stuff. And I know if I have hunted extensively in Alaska, I know quite, I have never heard of, uh, someone using the contested practice in fact when it came like like that you can kill a swimming caribou yeah most places you cannot i think there's two game there, there's two portions of there's portions of two game management units north of the brooks range where it's a traditional practice with indigenous alaskans to head off caribou at pinch points where they're crossing rivers yeah. Yeah, Hunt, I, they've hunted them that way for probably thousands of years and but they sell it like, oh, now um, that's going to be going on here when it's a toolkit. Like the state of Alaska has, has the ability to open up that method of take, which they have chosen not to do across about 99% of the state. And there's a couple places where they allow it because of traditional use practices. And most of but it the is- way it's sold in the, mean, in the media is that there's this last little bastion where you cannot shoot swimming caribou from a boat. So it goes back to our message and messenger that we were talking about. That's exactly what they're doing. They're spinning it and spinning the PR, and they get a lot because emotional arguments and emotional things work great in the press. But they get a lot a of press. This is a good example of 
the way this information came out could have been delivered in a hell of a lot better way with much better context. It's where a, it, it we could have been delivered in a way to where the other side would, wouldn't be able to take that information and run with it the way they have. Because I'm getting this question all the time too. And well, yeah, it's, it's a, well, they're these, good at what they do. Yeah, 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 yeah. they are. And, and they have a ton of money and they have a ton of media uh, connections. And so they can put this out there. And once it's out, it takes off. I mean, you watch it go viral and it's hard for us to turn around and flip that. You know, like, what do we say? Well, you know, NBC ran probably the worst article about the story and then corrected. I think it was because of this digital radio program went out and, uh, which is, I'm joking. Uh, and then did, and then did a, some weeks later did a very sophisticated follow look up. At, yeah. A very sophisticated follow up at it. And I was like, I was impressed with it, that article. It, that was a good article. And that's about as balanced as we're going to be able to get as a hunting community. The first did one they did was they even threw in like bacon and donut. It cracked yeah, me up. Like yeah. it was just like, they tried to act like, and they tried to tie it into wild stuff. So, and yeah. just act like it was a, it was a war on predators, right? And then they followed up and did a thing where they went and actually like looked at where the practices are used, how they're used, an explanation of the management tools. Well, it, it's a very complex issue, more complex than management in the lower 48 even because you're dealing with, like you said, indigenous and subsistence use, which is spelled out in state law. It's, there's, there's, there's different parts of Alaska's entry to the, to the union that it spelled out some of these things that, that, that Congress has ratified, right? The Statehood Act provides for a sustained use, a sustained yield policy. The, 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 you have a NILCA out there that also has these, 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 these inroads that, that allow for certain practices to take place. And the state is, is supposed to manage wildlife to allow for those subsistence hunters. And so you complicate the issue of just trying to understand what are the practices we're talking about and then what did the Obama administration do to change the long-running practice? You know, this is, this is a great idea of the toolbox, right? The state of Alaska had these tools in their toolbox up until 2015 when the Obama administration changed and stripped it away. And they were mostly never happening. That's right. Never. That's right. And so it was, it was a, a vast federal overreach in terms of the federal government for the first time in this instance saying, we're going to sever the tie between the state management of these species on federal lands, and we're going to take that back and say, you know, we just don't like those practices. Those practices are distasteful, and you're not allowed to do them anymore. These are practices that have been reserved but, but for the But even state. though they're still able to do it on 84% of the state. That's right. And they're able to, but are generally not doing the practices in 84% of the state. That's right. And so the biggest issue for us, the reason why we sued over that whole issue, the reason why we petitioned the, the Department of Interior to undo the rule and, and they've started that process, was in doing so, they vastly changed the definition of predator management. Right? A lot of this comes down to the predator management side of things, whether or not you can hunt wolves in the summer, whether or not you can hunt bears over bait, or like you said, the caribou issue where they're swimming, that kind of thing. Um, but the predator side is the big one because they changed the definition definition of predator management in their rule in 2015, and they changed the way it was applied. Right before the state talked about these intensive predator management issues, right, those things that a lot of folks are going to find troubling in the media. But it's not just the idea that you're going to go out there and, and take a bear or take a wolf. But they expanded that to mean that any any time you change the rules that could be viewed as a expansion of predator management. That's in violation of federal rule now, and you can't do it. So what, it, what it, in, in essence, and this is a silly example, but if the Board of Game in Alaska said all of a sudden, you know what, we're going to extend the summer wolf hunting season by one minute, one minute, now you're in violation of federal rule. You, that's, that's how hamstrung they would be. You couldn't change anything that would have an impact on expanding predator management. Yeah. 
And so you, you've seen these things, you know, it's, it, it's also important to, to understand that, you know, yeah, 83% of the state, if, if, if that's the number, you, you can already do these practices on. But you're talking about this was Fish and Wildlife Service land and this was Park Service preserved land. It's 97 million acres. If that were a state, it'd be the fourth largest state in the country. Just, it'd be bigger than Montana. Yeah, that's a good way to express it. I mean, it's a huge, huge, vast area of land that we're talking about here. And you're, you're really talking about the idea that, and why the lower 48 guys should care, because you have the federal government stepping in and saying, you know what, state, we got this. No longer, you're, you're no longer in charge of management. We're going to take it over. We're going we're gonna to do what we think is right. But in the case of Alaska, it's we're going to take it over without being able to demonstrate you that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, 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 you, you, can't, you can't point to... They weren't able to point to a mismanagement. They weren't able to point to a collapsing population. There was like nothing to back it up. I could see if some if a state had some policy that was running some species into the ground or driving them toward an ESA listing. But in here you have a state that like really the only here you have a state where they have uh, wolves and grizzlies on whatever ninety nine percent of historic range. So it's like in absence of a problem, you're creating an oversight issue. It'd be like coming into it's a, a solution town. without a problem. Yeah, it'd be like coming. Like I've I've expressed this before. It'd be like coming into a city where there's not like a high incident of traffic accidents. They have a like pretty safe traffic record. It's in line with everything else. But you come in and say like, you know what? If your road passes a federal building, I want you to change all of the traffic laws there, kind of arbitrarily, but just because that's how I would like to see it happen. And and it's your responsibility to manage that and go and and make that clear. Not that there's a problem. Right. The funny part about you know? all this, and that's a fantastic point. The funny part about this is in the environmental assessment that the federal government did, they actually, and I'll read this to you, they actually admit that this policy could cause extirpation of certain species. Under some conditions and in some locations, this may include either predator, prey, or both populations declining to a point that they are below the threshold for detection through current monitoring techniques, or they may actually become locally extirpated. They're actually admitting that that policy of changing the predator management stuff could cause some prey species to become extirpated. Yeah, like you would probably see with trying to recover desert big, uh, reopening an old one, trying to recover desert bighorns in Arizona. Yeah. If you lost the, the if you lost the lion hunting management tool, you're probably going to be kissing goodbye. Yeah, or if you lost water gobblers, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Yep. You're like you're kissing goodbye little isolated desert bighorn populations. Yep. So are you for wildlife or not? Exactly. Because, all right, my last question. Um, I already know the answer, so I want to put it out there. <laughs> Is there a potential truce? Okay. Let's say we get rid of bear hunting. Let's say hunters come to the table. We're like, okay, we'll make a deal. We'll quit hunting bears, quit trapping beavers. We're cool, right? That's the end. Of, everything that's, but cormorants. That's the end. That's the end of this whole thing, right? Yep. Let's shake on it. Is there a truce to be made? No, we lose. We're the only side giving anything up. You know, it, it can't be a truce when, when you know, you're, you're going to say, well, let's just let's have a compromise, right? Instead of the ten things I want to do, we're just going to do five of them. We're going to find five methods. Well, we've lost that now. You, you can't get that back. The truce to them is that there's no more hunting. Like that's where this is headed. Yeah. yeah. What, what do we get out of that? I mean, the, you know, we're basically negotiating against ourselves, and that's the, that's the great challenge here. We have to win every time. They only have to win once. If they win one out of ten, every ten issues they put out there, they're still moving the ball down the field. 
You know, it's this death by a thousand cuts approach. They're going to try stuff all over the place and they're going to see what sticks. And they're going to take their victories where they can get them. And they're going to put them on the shelf and we're not going to get that back. Just like we didn't get mountain lion back in, in California. Like, just like we're not going to get bear hunting back in California, likely. Once you lose these, these opportunities, they're gone. So for the other side, I, I don't believe there's anything to be had there. For them, why come? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, they came into Washington State and they banned the use of hounds and hounds and bait. Yeah. Then they came back 10 years later and banned trapping. Yeah. So they're not happy. They just want to take it away and they want the world to run according to their belief system. I think it gets back to the idea you hit on upon earlier, right? It's that they, they want to point to these inhumane and barbaric and cruel, whatever, whatever terms they use to define the, the, the method of take as the reason why they're doing this, right? We're only doing it because it's the most inhumane forms of hunting or it's the most inhumane take. But the truth of the matter is they're, they're not okay with it at all. You know, they're not okay with the idea of, you know, you hear about shooting a bear out of a tree or shooting a lion out of a tree. But if you shot that bear at 800 yards across the canyon, they'd have a reason why they're opposed to that. They have circular arguments. It's all circular arguments. It's either, if you're using a primitive weapon, then it's a primitive weapon and you're going to higher chance of injuring that animal and getting away and it's suffering. If you use high tech where you got a scope and you're dialed in, you can shoot it at 100 yards or 1,000 yards, now you're not ethical and you're not fair. So it doesn't matter what you do or say, they have an argument it's got to it. work kind of good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's and the the average deer hunter needs to care about these fringe benefit or these fringe sports just as much because one, those animals eat the deer and the elk and everything else. But when they finish with that, they're coming after the bow hunters. They had a big thing in the '80s and early '90s mm-hmm. where they went after bow hunting, and they've been pushing, looking at that again. You know, so it's. They'll go after the bow hunting and say it's, uh, you know, not ethical. And then the muzzle loader, and they'll just keep chipping away. They don't care. It's like negotiating with terrorists. Cal, uh, do, you, do you go ahead, uh, concluders? I'm guessing you want to get back in the cormorants? Negative. Oh. No, 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 no. That was just an example. <laughs> now, we've now stoned that bird. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the we just need to get to a spot where it's like we have kids that are growing up in non-hunting families wanting wanting to be the next kevin murphy you know wanting to be the next steven Rinella, and saying like hey these people are making a difference and they're contributing um so you see a bright spot yeah i think there's there's a hell of an opportunity there you know and uh we have uh, a lot of media out there you know and you said like Oh, it's a war on predators, right? Man, I can sit down with Final Cut Pro and YouTube and make you a hell of a video that shows a war on predators, right? I'll take, so, that. I'll take you up on that, Cal. <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's advancing, the, advancing the sport for the next generation. I'm, I'm not saying at all losing anything, but, for example, like the Montana trapping issue. Right, you guys have a picture of it up here on your wall. I was like, that made my skin crawl. I hated it that it, I couldn't believe that my home state that would ever even come up. But when I started wading in on that issue and um, you know trying to, to do my own advocacy on it, there's a lot of folks out there that I didn't want to associate with that were some of the loudest voices. And how do we get everybody on the same page and say, hey, if you want this to exist? maybe you guys should not be talking the way you're talking or addressing the general public the way you're talking, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of both sides, right? Like 
we can do better PR. We can be our, our own worst enemies at yes. times. At the, at the other end of the spectrum, we have to get off our high horse sometimes and meet in the middle, like right? So yeah. we got to protect these guys, but we also can't condemn them. So it's, it's that meeting in the middle. We both have to do a little, both yeah. sides. The, yeah, the own worst enemy argument is one that, it's a huge argument, and it's one that uh, warrants getting into, and it's it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. But I think that there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, there are a lot of well-meaning people who seem to to, to provide a never-ending stream of awful PR. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oftentimes it's coming from a really cynical perspective where it's like, well, I'm going to shove it in their face. Yeah. And they think they're or, doing well. They think they're doing good. But yeah. a lot of times it hurts. Or a lot of times it's uh, selfish. You know, we've seen people construct drama in order to get the hunting community to rally around yeah. them. And now they're getting financial benefit out of it. And they yeah. call us and are like, hey, we're getting harassed by anti-hunters. How do we do this? Well, it's pretty easy. Make your page private. <laughs> quit, quit, quit jumping around quit in front court, of people. Quit courting, I mean, I, inviting disaster. Yeah, I've been doing this for twenty years. I used to troll PETA's message boards, and I still haven't got a death threat. Yeah. <laughs> message boards. You just you just showed your yeah, age I'm there. <laughs> Kevin Murphy, you got any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I know you haven't had an opportunity to say a whole lot, Kevin. I know you're just absorbing, absorbing. But do you have any? Um... And I've been doing some technical issues too. Helping my man here. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of these topics that we've talked about uh, do affect uh, the small game hunters in the central southern states. A lot head to the north uh, in the summer, in the early fall. Hunting season opens up early. We have those hunting opportunities. 2013, I was in Maine uh, grouse hunting with some friends of mine from West Virginia and Virginia. Uh, we saw the bear issue firsthand up there. Uh, I was concerned. Um, I called back home through the League of Kentucky Sportsmen, asked them to put some show some support up there, try to send some funding to help fight this issue. Uh, no, there's a, there's a case example of what I was talking about earlier. Yes, and um, <clears throat> uh, we have bear hunting in the state of Kentucky for a long time. We we didn't have it. Just when the last like ten years, I personally penned wrote the resolution. So through our sportsman club, the LBO Sportsman Club, so that you could hunt bears in Kentucky with dogs. They were starting to become a, a, a nuisance in there. They had a, a gun hunt, slight, slight gun hunt in there, but finally we wrote that resolution. We, we took it through the League of Kentucky Sportsmen. They presented it to the wildlife biologists. They reviewed it, says there's no problem hunting, hunting bears in Kentucky with, with dogs. No kidding. That's yes. something that happened? Yes. Yes. I wrote the, like I said, the resolution. We have a sportsman club, and if you're a member of that, you can you can look at the game laws. If you want to try to help help adjust those where you're a hunter, you think that, that they may need to be tweaked a little bit. So, you know, it's got to go through a chain. You just don't write something and, and, and send it in. You get the support from from uh, uh, the League of Kentucky Sportsmen. They take it and, and, and hand it over to the state fishing game uh, department, they review that resolution and say yay or nay, whatever, and then they'll have a vote on it. That's some good Kentucky elbow grease right there, man. We've Getting got in it. there, learning what the law is, learning how to work within the system, engaging with sportsmen, engaging with biologists. Uh, 
our learning state, all about stuff. Yeah. You know, our, our state motto <laughs> like, and, and, and what we've talked about here is, you know, on our flag is, is united we stand, divided we fall. Uh-huh. And, you know, as sportsmen, outdoorsmen, fishermen, you know, we need to stay together. We do not let need to let the antis fragment our hunting and fishing and outdoor activities. Join a, join a sportsman club locally. Pay attention to what's going on, just like you guys have discussed, but be involved because there's going to be residual effects from these negative laws that impact hunting and fishing that can trickle down to you personally. Put in some elbow grease, not just sit back and bitch. Yes. Kentucky mm-hmm. elbow grease. I like it. I love that thing that you were up doing a little diplomacy. Mm-hmm. You were in Maine, made some connections, came home and said, hey, fellas. I, I, I didn't. I, I did it from there. Uh, I, saw yeah, some I, of the, I saw some of the newspaper articles, the uh, 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 television ads. Um, I had been up there a time or two, so I had a friendship, a bond with uh, the people that I was hunting with up there. We stay in a, a typically a bear hunting lodge that just rents that out to us during some of his off-season. When you're hunting birds. When we're hunting birds. Yeah. Uh, I've been with some of the bear hunters up there. Uh, just as a um, sidekick to blow the horn. And, um, you know, there's a great bunch of people up, up in Maine there. And just like I said, you know, we just cannot let them fragment our hunting and fishing opportunities out there. Because if, if they do, it's just going to all crumble one of these days. That's right. Yanis? Speaking uh, about how we can be proactive, you mentioned that there's a couple states, and I don't know if I caught it right, but there's a couple states that have it in their state constitution where you can't have ballot initiatives mess with wildlife management. So can we get that in more states? Yeah, they're, they're not that clean. It's not that it's not just a flat-out prohibition, but there's things you can do. Like you look at Utah, it has a supermajority requirement vote on those type of issues. So instead of the 50% plus one voter, you have to get to 60 or 63 or 65% or, or a higher percentage, mm. which makes it all that more difficult. Um, there's other things you can do in, 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 in law and in the constitutional law that, that would provide barriers, but they're very tough to get done. Um, they're tough to get done in a manner that actually provides some teeth that provides protections, right? Because getting back to, to Cal's question earlier, they don't go after banning bear hunting. They're going after a specific mean and method. So you have to be very careful on how you write those protections. And, and, and when you look at like these right to hunt uh, amendments, when you look at constitutional protections, does it actually provide the, the necessary level of protection or are we just making ourselves feel like, well, they can't harm us? Mm. And so it, it's a challenge. There's there some stuff we can do. Um, we've looked at, uh, we looked at some stuff in Maine. We looked at some stuff in Montana after both of those campaigns to try to suggest changes to either law or constitutional law that would uh, provide some of those protections. But oftentimes, you're, you know, you're talking about changing the Constitution. You're talking about running another ballot issue campaign yourselves. So you're still talking about raising a whole bunch of money, spending gotcha. a couple of years putting a campaign together, and then going head-to-head with HSUS or whoever else on the animal rights side would, would want to come to the table. And so if you, if you really write one of these things and, and push one of these campaigns that would put some teeth in and put some real protection in, you're going to see the other side spend money because they know they're, that's going to be a it's going to be a barrier to them coming back in the future. Right, you, it, we, it could be a win, like you said. You could put it on your shelf and be like, "All right, we got that one." And it's it's you know it's it you know you look at we use Maine as the example. We we beat this to death today, but like like Kevin said, you know, their group sent money up from Kentucky. 
that, that $2.3 million we raised was done at the grassroots level. There wasn't a $500,000 check coming from Washington, D.C. like HSUS had. It was done $25 here and $1,000 there and $500 here from houndsmen out west and guys in Kentucky and people in Minnesota and all over the place. We raised that money grassroots style. It took, it took a year and a half to raise the $2.3 million. We beat the bushes. We beat the snot out of the folks in Maine trying to raise that money. Those guys gave everything they had. You have guys up there who, are, who aren't making a ton of money giving you what they can give you. And so to turn around on the heels of winning after that and come back to them and say, yeah, now we got to do it again a second time to go put the constitutional protection in there, that's tough, man. I'll tell you what, it's really, really tough to get those people to be fired up and engaged a second time when they've just given you the, the shirt off their back to try to protect their way of life. Yeah, yeah. They, so, want, they want to get back to deer hunting. They want to get back to deer hunting. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Was that your concluder, Yanni? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Well, for me, I guess I'll expand upon what Kevin was saying. And, and, and I really truly believe like we're in an inflection point in the hunting community that we're going to see over the next 10 to 15 years. You know, we've got this whole generation of people that are growing up today who are living in a world, and they're becoming voting age, and they're of voting age right now, who are living in a world where their entire lives they've never known wildlife to be in peril, right? We didn't have to restore turkeys. We didn't have to restore deer. They, they were on the landscape. They can't see back to the, the, the reasons why we started some of these programs, the reasons why groups like RMEF or NWTF or any of these other great conservation organizations, why they were founded in the first place. And so in their mind's eye, we've got wildlife everywhere. We don't need to worry about management. We don't need to worry about hunters. Well, you, know, you, you talk about the, the distinction between how do hunters play into the management side of this thing? Those folks have no idea. They just know wildlife exists. At the same time, you're marrying that against the idea of the folks that have, have created these concrete jungles where wildlife no longer lives are the ones who are now having the power to dictate wildlife management laws and rules and regulations. And a lot of times the voting comes down to those individuals. So I really feel like we're at that inflection point where over the next 10 to 15 years, we've got to stick together. There's going to be more attacks. There's going to be more issues. There's going to be a need to be involved in these issues and, and, and keep the wolves at bay. Otherwise, we're going we're gonna to face a drastic future. And it's going to be a drastically different landscape where I, I, can't, I, I struggle to think what the future looks like in that scenario. So I, I do think we're at that inflection point. You know, it's, it's, it's the, a theme we've talked about a lot today. But how do we protect that future? How do we, how do we ensure that this, this great experiment that we've been going through for the last 100 and 120 years lives on? And if not, what's that future going to look like? What's the future of conservation look like if, 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 we, if, you, if you sever that bond, if you break, break that tie between the goose that lays the golden egg, right? You get rid of hunters and the conservation dollars they're pouring into, into these states, into the federal government. What are we going to do? I like it that you mentioned National Wild Turkey Federation in that conversation because here, on, you know, on top of the billion dollars annually that goes into conservation from guns, ammunition, sporting goods, equipment, fishing equipment. And then the other, you know, I don't know, billion some dollars from tags, licenses, and stamps that goes into funding wildlife at the state level, in every state at the state level. A group like the NWTF, I think in the history of that organization, they've put just slightly south of $500 million in the wildlife habitat. Yeah. Yeah, we've done a lot of great work with those guys over the years. It's it's an amazing organization. Yeah, it's like you, and then like you look at that, like the impact of the habitat work that has gone to wildlife, and then you compare that to what an animal rights group is actually 
find an animal rights group that's actually working to do the the, the work on habitat. Yeah. Like what is going to, the thing that's going to measure the success of wildlife in this country, the success, the future success of wildlife in this country is going to come down to inhabit. It's going to come down to habitat. Yeah. That's what it is. It's not the one by one numerical. It's not the one by one mechanical removal of animals is not the issue. That issue is, is there a place for them to exist? And hunters through mandatory spending, and man in a self-imposed taxation system and then voluntary spending are driving the habitat programs in this country oh absolutely and, and don't it's like leave. that's where wildlife <clears throat> will live and, and we'd be remiss to not mention target shooters in that as well you know you look at some of our business partners are spending what was it vista spends 87 million dollars last year in, in 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 pr money yeah I mean, that, that's yeah, that. Pip, Pip, not PR like public yeah, relations, yeah. PR no, like Pittman Roberts. That's right. Funds. Excise yeah. tax dollars are coming back into conservation. You know, it, yeah, it, recreational shooters versus mm-hmm. your hunter. And right. they pitch into that fund a, a heck lot. of a lot more. Yeah, it's that. funny that, like, uh, like uh, you know, some old granny living in the city somewhere and she's got like a pistol in her nightstand <laughs> is paying for conservation but it's like, it un, un, like yeah unknown yeah unbeknownst to her she's paying for wildlife conservation <laughs> new jersey cat lady who's against bear hunting wants to pay for conservation too so yeah we'll take the money though i'll tell you yeah. what go ahead we covered a lot of ground dude lots of ground and uh florida to alaska yep california to maine, maine to california and we just scratched the surface on so many different things and and that's what's fun about these conversations because they're they're always eye openers for folks um these heavy subjects that's it sucks to think about you know because it's it's what we all love everybody here loves getting outdoors and just loves enjoying that time outside but there's so many things everything is so complex the basic premise behind you know what we need from people is involvement you know we need every deer hunter out there involved. We need every duck hunter out there involved. They've got to understand the bigger picture of these issues. They've got to look beyond their back 40, uh, beyond their immediate hunting season, and, and see what else is out there. See those threats, understand them. Uh, and they've got to get engaged. You know, like, like Kevin said, hey, start your sportsman's club. Join there. Get involved at the local level. Know what's going on in your own state. Know what's going on in your neighboring states and within your regions. And pay attention to those things. Um, Obviously, we want them to become members of the Sportsman's Alliance. We talk about, you know, if we just had 1% of every licensed buying hunter out there to be a member of this organization, I mean, that's an absolute game changer. Our mission, protecting and advancing hunting, fishing, trapping, right? We spend most of our time on that protecting side. What can we do on the advancing side? How many more states can we get involved in with, with families of field legislation? How many more, um, you know, youth programs can we put together? Can we get people out there, not only youth, but young adults who want to learn how to hunt, who want to understand, hey, I, I kind of want to know a little bit more about where my food comes from. And hunting seems like a pretty organic process for me to get involved in and, and do those types of things. So how many more advancing side of things can we get involved in if hunters start getting more engaged? And we, you know, we're the key to all of this. If we want wildlife to continue, it's going to come down to habitat and it's going to come down to our involvement. So we've got to get, I guess, a little more uh, outside of just being a selfish hunter. And, and we've, we've done that throughout our history. You know, I mean, to Evan's point where 
we've got people who've grown up in a generation where they haven't seen wildlife in peril. Turkeys are pretty prominent. Deer are everywhere. Um, you know, we need that more involvement, that more engagement, so that we can continue those things. We can have them in perpetuity for future generations to get out there and enjoy. Amen. Yeah. Well, I don't say that very often, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, I'd just, just like to uh, thank you all for coming out and uh, having us on the show. It, uh, it's huge for us. We're a small organization. I mean, there's 15, 20 of us, and that's it. You know, we get overshadowed by a lot of guys, uh, bigger groups. Um, but I've been involved with Sportsman's Alliance. I've been here for four years almost. But going back 10, 15 years when I was at ESPNOutdoors.com and editor at Outdoor Life, um, and this is a solid organization. I mean, doing the work that needs done without getting the headlines, don't have a huge PR department to push it out and, uh, and do it. And like Sean said, if we had more help and had 1% of hunters, you know, we could do so much more. When, it, when you're talking lobbying, lawsuits, and ballot initiatives, it all comes down to money. That's what it is, you know. And it sucks, that it's that, but it, that's what it takes to win these things, and that's where the fight is. And the other side, HSUS, CBD, Sierra, all these guys have tons and tons of money that they can just drive us all out of business piece by piece. So we all need to stick together, look ahead, and uh, you know, take the fight to where they're at. And you guys have a regular annual membership program? Yeah, if, if you go to sportsmansalliance.org, it's right there at the top under Alliance Membership. Just click on there and join. The basic membership level, it's $35 a year. You know, it's, it's right there. So it goes up from there. There's all that's helpful. Yeah. And that's, then there's clubs. You yep. know, your sportsman's clubs, you want to be part of it, you can do that. Uh, we business partners. There's anybody that wants to be a part of the Alliance, we're, we're allies. Yeah, and what's I mean, the public? Sorry, what's the publication you guys put out, and how often? That's our uh, that's our newsletter that goes out to the members. It's uh, every two months, and so we call it just Sportsman's Monthly. Every two months, and so kind of yeah. big picture stuff in the feature well, down to the legislation and members and the businesses that support us. It's worth thirty five bucks a year just to have someone keep you apprised of what's going on, man. Yeah. We'll yep. take we'll take more than thirty five too. If you don't <laughs> <want to get. laughs> No, I understand, but it's a, it's a way for people to to no, it's it's easy dip I mean, in the toe, man. Yeah, you think about that. It's it's a pack of broadheads, right? That's right. It's thirty five bucks. It, it's, it's good insurance on the future of our our way of life, right? You're talking about trying to trying to quantify what our group does and the protection aspect of who we are. We're you know we're not like RMEF or NWTF in that they've got a critter, they've got a, a a tangible item you can wrap your arms around. You're doing habitat work. You're restoring a population of a species. We're kind of selling insurance. You know, we're kind of selling protection way of life. We're like the fire department, right? Nobody wants to pay taxes. Until your house is on fire, you want to pick up the phone and call somebody who's going to come help you. Yeah, yeah. And so we don't have those tangible items. We're not doing the conservation work and the, and the habitat work that these groups are doing. They're doing a fantastic job of that. That's not us. What we're doing is protecting the way of life that that supports. And so for us, it's a little bit different argument. We're in the same space. but yeah, we're coming in to put fires out, man. That's right. So we're, we're coming at it from the other side. Yeah. We spend a lot of time pushing... Um, and I will continue to do so, pushing those, you know, the, advancing the agenda of wildlife groups, advancing the agenda of habitat groups. And that stuff is extremely important, but I think it's also important to stay, to stay in the game and stay in the fight on, on 
Protection of rights. That's right. Protection of hunter rights. Man. Yeah, we can't advocate like, that a, space. Yeah, it's a two it's a two pronged battle that everyone that hunts and fishes needs to needs to pay attention to. Uh, guys, I appreciate you giving us so much of your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping.